Hey, welcome to night school, Saturday night school. I've been thinking a lot about bands the last few days, the last week or so. Just thinking about just like like we're we're seeing things happen with <laughs> with music that I don't think we could have seen in dec you know decades previous because it's like now it's like there are so many different niches. There are so many different bands. There are so many different musicians and generations of musicians. And the subculture of rock and roll has been around for so long now. And it's become mainstream. And these other subcultures have developed inside of it. And so I, like, what I'm getting at is we're seeing things now that I don't think we could have seen in previous decades. And specifically, like, what got me thinking is the number of bands now that are that have been around for decades like like heavy metal specifically just different metal bands that have been around since let's say the early 80s and like now they typically a lot of them have like one original member and then the other members you know it's, it's become kind of this revolving door of other members so that's one thing that we see where it's just these bands that end up going on for decades very rarely retain original members and it just, yeah, it just ends up being one person, probably the person who wrote most of the material. Uh, but we just see that play out all the time. It's very difficult to keep people together, to keep people interested for long periods of time. And then the other thing, too, that I've noticed, and this does seem to be a brand new phenomenon, at least to the extent that it's showing up like all over the place, which is like new bands forming featuring old members of another band. And they're basically a cover band of that other band. It's like, it's basically like a certain lineup of a more well-known band has started their own cover band, but because it included members who had previously been in that larger band, it's almost like a, well, what if the band it's kind of like an alternative history sort of thing almost. It's like, well, here's here's what you would see if, if this group had stayed together. And just some examples of that offhand are, uh, I know the band Trouble, you know, the doom metal band Trouble. It's like some of the former members have their own band and it's named after one of the Trouble albums that they were on. The Skull. So their band is called The Skull. They're named after a Trouble album. They play Trouble songs and they're like now doing their own thing in that style of music. So it's like they basically created their own trouble. And uh, I mean, I, I know Black Flag's doing that. Like there's there's Black Flag with Greg Ginn. And then there's this other band called Flag that has ex-Black Flag members. So they're basically doing their own Black Flag. I've come across many examples of this. It seems like it's happening more and more where it's like there's now multiple versions of the same band, basically. And they get around it by changing the name or using a different name. And it's like lineups. Like, that's kind of what the Misfits were doing. You know, before they actually fully reformed a few years ago and did shows, Danzig and Jerry Only and all those guys together. Before they did that, like, they were kind of doing their own versions of it where obviously Jerry Only and Doyle started that, you know, obvious, like, if you want to call them the Misfits, you can, but basically they started recording under the Misfits name again in the 90s. But then Danzig's always done Misfits songs as part of his sets. Like when I saw him live in 
2001 or 2002, he did, I think, three or four Misfits songs as an encore. And then he got Doyle, so it was like basically a Misfits reunion. So, you know, Danzig's always incorporated the Misfits into Samhain, into Danzig and all that. Uh, but, so, it, you know, in some sense, they were kind of doing their own Misfits for a while. There are better examples than that, though. I mean, I've come across a bunch lately. But you get the idea where it's basically like two versions of the same band. And the fact that this is happening so much, like this didn't used to happen. It didn't, this didn't used to happen, but it's, it's kind of the product of like people from these youth, like, like you think about like heavy metal and punk, because that's where I'm seeing a lot of it is like in heavy metal and punk. And, you know, those are youth genres. And we're, we're reaching a point where, these people are getting to be close to senior citizen age. Like some of the people who were in pivotal bands in the late seventies, early eighties, I mean, they might already be senior citizens. And like even people who grew up on this stuff in the nineties are now like hitting 40 soon, if not already there. So it's like, it's no longer this youth music. And then like people have milked their bands for as long as possible. So they've kept their band alive or they've reformed their band and so as a result, like they've had to have this revolving door of other musicians to keep it going. Cause like, it's interesting just to see that. Cause it's like, you go through, like, if you just go through like some, some internet site that shows you like the histories of bands, you'll see that like almost all bands, it's just like guys who joined in the 2010s and then like one of the original members. And every once in a while you'll come across a band. And this is always a really interesting phenomenon to me when it's like, there's not a single original member in the band anymore. And, like, I get it if somebody was part of some pivotal lineup and, like, you know, members died or they just kind of passed it on to that member because they were part of the band, like, during a time when it mattered. Like, it doesn't matter that they they didn't start it. I understand, like, the idea, but it is always a little weird to me. Just, I don't know. I don't know what that is. I don't know why that that comes across so weird whenever I see it, but, like when you're just like, wow, not a single original member. And like, I guess part of that too is just the way music is hyped is like, they sell things based on the fact that featuring the original members, like when a reunion features the original lineup, it's always a bigger deal. So, I mean, part of it's just kind of the hype of music, but then that was the other thing I wanted to get into. And this is not something new, but I, I do wonder, I wonder whether this is a symptom of music itself or if it's just a product of like the way music has, has evolved in our culture, in Western culture, but just like how it's built in that there's all this drama and ego and conflict. And like from an early age, you just accept that that's a part of popular music. Like I remember getting into Metallica when I was a kid and being told by somebody, like maybe my sister or her friends, they were all into that stuff before I was obviously being older but I remember somebody like giving me the scoop on like Dave Mustaine and Megadeth and Metallica and how there's this beef. How it's like Dave Mustaine was the original guitarist and now he hates them. Now he hates Metallica because he was the original guitarist. You know, it's like you just know that story right away. And, and you just kind of accept that that's a part of music. Like music's this really serious thing that gets you hyped up. You feel it. It makes you feel alive. It makes you feel excited. And you feel that as a kid. Like when you first officially like realize that you can just be into whatever music you want to. Like when you're a kid and you feel that, that's an amazing feeling. 
Like, even if you look back at what you liked and you're like, huh, you know, what's up with that? Like, still, just the fact that, like, you can listen to music as a kid and you're like, oh, wow, this is actually something I like and I, I think I want to keep checking this out. But it's like, it, it, like, along with that, though, you, you just, you kind of, like, start to hear all these rumors and you, you, you come across interviews or you hear about these things. It's just kind of built into music, to popular music, to even underground music. Where it's like, oh, this band has a beef with so-and-so. And that's the other thing I was going to say is like, speaking of like all these bands having a revolving door of members, like especially bands who've been around for 20, 30, 40 years, like the revolving door of members often involves stories of like so-and-so's ego, like the main guy's ego. I mean, going back to the Misfits, that's always been the story with any of Glenn Danzig's bands is his notorious ego. But he's also a freak. He's also a visionary. I mean, you, you look at the Misfits and it's like this Italian kid writing these dark jingles, these like just insanely memorable hooks in the form of these dark little jingles. Like it's just incredible. And, and I mean, he continued in, in Samhain, but evolved and then it became Danzig. And it's just like all along, that guy's had a vision. And even when you read interviews or, or listen to interviews with former members of Danzig, Misfits, Sam, and you'll hear about a lot of beefs that they have with him and a lot of problems they had with him. But you can always tell there's like admiration and respect for the way that he does music and how insane he is about writing and performing music. So it's like, it, it, you know, sometimes things take like a freak's ego and it's not fun for those other guys to have to be like Danzig's music slaves because that's what they say it was like. They say that he would just like watch them practice and just stare at them and then like get upset if they messed up because he had very specific ways that he wanted them to play everything because I don't know how many people know this, but Danzig wrote like every single instrument. I don't know up to what point, but definitely every single instrument in The Misfits, every instrument in Samhain, and I believe at least early Danzig, he was writing the the music as well. So it's like, and a bunch of the recordings too, like a bunch of famous Misfits recordings actually have Danzig on drums, guitar, like he would do overdubs. So he was way more a part. He, I mean, he wrote everything and he very firmly instructed everybody on how to play it. Um, so, I mean, when someone's that insane though, I mean, I think you do have to kind of respect them and, and just respect that you're honoring their vision, but that's where egos come in and just, you know, you don't want to, I don't know. You know, a lot of people get into music because it makes them distinct. It makes them unique. And then, you know, when you're not allowed to contribute to something, I mean, that just sucks. But I think so. Like, Danzig's work is, is self-evident as far as I'm concerned, where it's like between 1977 and 1994, there was not a single, not only not a, not a misstep, but it's like every single thing he did between 1977 and 1994 was an absolute classic that whether I'm 15 years old or now 35, like I still consider just uncontested, just nothing like it. You know, there's nothing like it. And to have that kind of streak where like for 17 straight years, and I mean, I think you could kind of pad that on each side too. I'm trying to remember if there was any misfit stuff from 1976. I don't think so. And his early, like, apparently he was in a cover band. They covered The Doors and Black Sabbath, and I, I would love to hear that. 
I would love to hear a young Danzig doing Doors and Black Sabbath covers, but let's just assume it was good. <laughs> let's assume it was good. Like, basically what we're looking at here is almost 20 straight years of Danzig doing incredibly good material. And it's like, who else did that? Like, even if you like an artist and feel like a given artist or band has a, a mostly good track record, I can't think of very many artists who went from 1977 to 1994, 17 years, and released classic after classic. You know, they, they formed their own genres. I mean, the music he wrote formed its own genre as well as created the foundations of these other genres at the time and crossed them over in a way that was organic. I mean, obviously I'm a fan, okay? But the, the reason I'm talking about it is because like, you know, he had a massive ego. He has a massive ego. And I think that's cool. I don't, I don't know. That's another weird thing about the way people look at music where it's like people are constantly evaluating musicians' personalities and as fans using that as sort of like this, uh, like judging them based on that, you know, fans have a tendency to be like, oh, he's an asshole though. Oh, his music's good, but he's an asshole. Like, people have this really strong need to to comment on musicians' personalities. Or the way they come across publicly. Like, oh, he's an asshole. Oh, I, they met him. He's an asshole. I mean, I guess they do it with all celebrities, anyone of note. I mean, this is what you see online. People just have this need to kind of bash each other. I mean, I still remember my buddy Nick and I going into a bar in our hometown Emerald Gardens, it's like attached to a Chinese restaurant and like only old people go there. And we were just sitting there just listening and they were talking about actors' heights. They're like, oh yeah, there's this young guy and he, he's like young Irish actor, 6'2". And another guy talks, he's like, oh, you know, well, this actor is 6'3". And then someone was like, well, you know, you know, Sylvester, Stall you know, Sly Stallone is really short. And then this other guy said... Yeah, my, my cousin, um, her group of friends, he was in her group of friends back when she lived in L.A. I hear they call him Ego Stallone. And they were like, ah. It's like just, just the, the need to comment. Like the need to tell people that Sylvester Stallone has a big ego. And I mean, being a Danzig fan, I have a sense of humor about Danzig, but it's different than the stupid bottom-of-the-barrel lowest common denominator sense of humor. Like, I think that that whole thing that was going on years ago where like people used to joke about Danzig and Henry Rollins being gay together. And then like some opportunist, that joke had been around forever. Like as long as I had been into those bands, as long as I had been a fan, I remember people joking about that because, you know, it's, I mean, Henry Rollins has misfits tattoos. Like those guys go way back. Uh, but people were always making those jokes. Like people I knew personally would make those jokes. And then uh, like some opportunist made like a, a comic book about it, which is just stupid. Like, I, I don't know. And it's funny too, because like being a Danzig fan, you'd get a lot of shit for it. Like on one hand, like Danzig's insanely popular and has a lot of fans. But even then, a lot of the fans feel like they have to qualify it. Like, oh, he's an asshole. Oh, but, you know, Glenn's an asshole. I hear they call him Ego Anzalone. I hear they call him Ego Danzig. They'll kind of talk th that way about him as well. And I mean, and it's deserved. I mean, he has that reputation for a reason. But 
but like there were always these kids too, like because Beavis and Butthead made fun of Danzig, and that was funny. Like like them watching the mother video, that was funny. But there was this group of kids that I went to junior high with who we called the Scrubs, and they like they wore camo pants every day, Metallica shirts. I mean, they were seriously like they were already Beavis and Butthead, but then they had seen Beavis and Butthead. So it was like that that flanderized them. Like there's this term flanderization that someone came up with that like it refers to the Simpsons, which like again, like I've said before, like I never really watched much Simpsons. Like it, it was funny or whatever. It was it was a fun show, but I just I never really got that into it. But I do know a fucking ton about it just for whatever reason. Like for a show that I barely watched or paid attention to, it's amazing like the cultural hold the Simpsons has because I know like all this stuff about it just from other people, just from hearing people talk about it all the time. So I, I certainly know who Ned Flanders is, but flanderization, it's like some term someone came up with to refer to like when a character is introduced, like basically the reason why they, they use Ned Flanders for that term is because I guess when Ned Flanders was introduced on the Simpsons, he was still, he was still like the quirky evangelical Christian neighbor, but like his Flander, his Flanders mannerisms that we now associate with him, which like even I know about. You know, it's like I, I could tell you I, I couldn't quote him, but it's like I can see it, I can see it and hear it in my head. It's like Tom he's like the Tom Bombadil of the Simpsons, you know, it's like Tom Bombadil, the worst part of Lord of the Rings, like this random forest ranger type guy like shows up and he does all these obnoxious songs and like he, he's extremely polarizing and he wasn't included in the movie and you know, I, I wanted to like it, but like I, reading the Tom Bombadil part of Lord of the Rings, I was just, I couldn't wait to get through it. And I was glad that I already knew Lord of the Rings was good and that I was enjoying it up to that point. Because if I had just read Lord of the Rings in the wild, not knowing anything about it and came across this Tom Bombadil chapter, it feels longer than a chapter, but I'd be like, what the fuck am I reading? It's like Bombadilarillo, Jello dillo walking in the forest dillo it's like he rhymes everything with like dillo or illo and that's like like ned flanders is what i'm getting at it's like ned flanders like does all these tongue twisting weird sayings and everything and like the process of flanderization this trope is that like over time you know ned flanders started out just doing that some of the time but because like people responded to it and that became this like defining characteristic it, it got to the point where ned flanders like only did that or like his entire personality was those mannerisms. So it's basically like flanderization is when you take something that might have already been somewhat of a caricature and you enhance the exaggerated aspects of it. So you basically end up with a caricature of a caricature and in a cartoon or, or fiction, it's like that can easily become this hall of mirrors caricature of a caricature of a caricature and you're no longer left with a real character. And uh, I mean, that happens with music. I was, I was going to say, like, I can't remember why I was talking about it, but I know we were talking about musicians here. And I mean, that does kind of play into music as well, where, I mean, you look at the Misfits, where, you know, back in the day, they were kind of like a living collage. It's like you look at what was so cool about them is like, yeah, they kind of had this hor this kind of pulpy B-movie, horror movie vibe. But then like Danzig would have these extremely dark lyrics that kind of come out of nowhere. 
Like he'd be saying something that is is an obvious reference to some horror movie, but then he'll he'll add some line that just goes, "What the where the fuck did that come from?" And I mean, he said he doesn't even. I heard there was an old interview where he said he didn't even feel like he was writing the lyrics to the Misfits, where it just was coming out of him. And I can see the there's some lines that are just like, "Wow, this is darker than this isn't just hokey horror movie comic book fan shit." There was some real stuff going on in his mind, you know artistically and i know he was a bukowski fan i've never read bukowski one of my good friends is a huge charles bukowski fan but um i mean obviously danzig had a bunch of influences but i don't know that flanderization i got lost on that i mean the misfits definitely went through that process where like originally what was so cool about them is is it's like they they had all this kind of imagery that could be hokey but it was kind of junked together and you know their artwork was obviously handmade danzig handmade it you know, Xerox and things were patched together. They were odd shaped. The guys themselves. I mean, like, like the flanderization of the misfits can be seen just in their devil locks alone, where, you know, if you look back at them in the early eighties, it's like the devil locks were just kind of these like tussles of hair in front of their face. It was just like they, they just like spiked their hair up or pushed their hair up and then like pulled, pulled some of it down in a clump and then you can see where, like, even back then, they, their devil locks started to get tighter and longer and pointier. And then when they reformed, you know, I would call it a Misfits-inspired band. You know, I'm, I'm past the point of talking shit about Jerry Only's Misfits from the 90s and later. I, I don't, I feel like it's really low-hanging fruit. Like, there was a point in time when I was a teenager where I would have vehemently denounce them but you know there's nothing that bad about it it's just that they're they were ultimately a misfits cover band without danzig um but you can see when they reformed they were like the the process of flanderization was complete like jerry only like everything was brighter like everything was very colorful like there was none of the weird grit that danzig the danzig misfits had it was just like this really smooth bright hokey even just a title like Famous Monsters. You know, it's like Danzig managed to somehow take these horror movie themes and even mainstream stuff, and he somehow managed to make it extremely misanthropic and personal because he's a magician, and I mean that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, with this Jerry Only version, it was like they flanderized the misfits, they flanderized themselves. And you can see just with their devil locks, you can see with their outfits, you can see with like Doyle, like painting his face completely white with like professional makeup shadow, you know, making him look like I don't even know what he's supposed to look like. You know, it's just everything became very slick and a caricature of itself. And Danzig really didn't do that himself. You know, you can talk shit about, you know, when he, when, there was a bit of this new metal influence to his sound. Like he's gone in some directions that I don't love, you know, over time. Like after that 17 year window of perfection, you know, he started to kind of dabble in some different directions. I don't think he's done anything to humiliate himself. He's always stayed Danzig, you know, he really hasn't become a caricature. I mean, there's something obviously theatric about him, but he hasn't become flanderized in my opinion. But you see that with bands in general, where it's like the longer they go, like the more they have to harp on like some quality they had, or like the more they have to like overemphasize it. And so they do often just kind of become a caricature of themselves. And 
Um, that revolving door, though, I, was, I wasn't done with that idea where it's like you see where there's like members come and go. And usually it is because of ego. And then when you're a kid, you learn very quickly that musicians and bands are this battle of egos and like so-and-so used to be in the band, but he's not friends with them. And then you'd find out that like some former member was still friends with them and you'd, you'd think that was cool. Be like, oh, man, yeah, he oh, he still sometimes like does vocals at their show. He does guest vocals still on their shows. Like they're still friends, man. It's there, there's this politics to music is basically what you learn. There's like these internal politics, and then it affects the fans because then fans will take a side. I just remembered another one of those bands. Like uh, this is a weird one. Like I, I don't even know why I know this, but there was that band Arch Enemy who did like really poppy, mainstream Swedish melodic death metal. That's a mouthful, but if you know who they are, it's like they've always had like a female vocalist. Uh, like some of the guys, like one of the guys was in Carcass when they were melodic, like when Carcass was doing that heart work stuff. One of the guys was in the band then. So they're just super melodic, poppy, basically, I guess you could call them Swedish death metal. But like a, they took like a previous lineup and created a new band named, it's, it's just like Trouble, where they named it after an old Arch Enemy album. And so now there's this new band. And what's really weird about it is it has members of both like current Arch Enemy as well as the lineup then. Like it's like there's members who pl are playing in both bands. They basically just restarted the band with its original lineup. And they're like, it's like some alternate timeline. Like what would have happened if we kept this lineup? So it's just, there's tons of examples of this. I mean, Black Sabbath even did it. They did that heaven and hell thing where they they basically started a new band with with Dio based on the Dio era Sabbath, and they called it Heaven and Hell after that album. So you know bands have started doing this, and I just I don't ever remember hearing of that. It's like a new mutation. It's like as people want to keep milking bands longer and longer, and then, I mean of course there are examples where it's good. But still, I mean, it is them trying to keep it going as long as possible and not just keep it going, but it's like spawning clones. It's spawning new limbs. It's truly a mutation and it does seem to be new. It, it seems to be a product of bands existing for a long time without breaking up, without, you know, I don't know. It's just, I wonder if we'll continue to see it. I mean, for a minute, Gorgoroth, I think, had two bands. I think there was there were two bands playing under the name Gorgoroth that featured different members. So it's like, and there's this competition, like Infernum did that. There's been a bunch of bands who do that, where there's like a fight over who owns the rights to the name. So for a while, you end up with two bands recording and performing under the same name. And so much of that's just the ego of it all, too. And I mean, I, I understand, like, I understand ego and creativity and all that. I mean... I don't understand it well enough to be past it, but I know it when I see it and I, I relate to it, but it's so hard to let go of. And like, we just kind of accept that like bands are this breeding ground for ego. And that's again, like, like I said a minute ago, how much of this is just inherent in creativity and music and people? I mean, we know to some degree it is like every once in a while you get a window into some other subculture, like the sciences where like everybody knows who the professors are, who's publishing papers and this, and they're extremely competitive. They all know who each other are. If I said that right, they all know who each other is. I'm losing my grammar. Um, 
basically they all know each other. There we go. And so like they like when some random, you know, PhD publishes a scientific paper, like these other PhDs know who that guy is and some of them see him as a rival, some of them are friends with him and see him as a rival. You know, all those same dynamics play out. And then there's like people who work on research to get together who have disputes. I mean, there's even like just like Jung and Freud, like Jung and Freud had been pen, I can't remember the exact story, but it was something to the effect of they had been pen pals and these close collaborators and friends, and they met and they like, they talked for some insane amount of time straight. Like, I want to say they just sat there and talked for 10 hours straight or something, maybe longer. And, uh, but then they had some minor disagreement, like something that we would consider a minor disagreement. I believe it was about, you know, just something they believed something psychological, spiritual, I don't know what it was exactly, but the idea is just that it caused them to become bitter rivals for a while. They stopped talking. And maybe I'm dramatizing that. Maybe maybe they just went their separate ways, but there was some kind of disagreement that led to them ceasing being friends. And so it's not just exclusive to music, but I will say music seems to be a breeding ground for it. We all seem to have a window into it because like bands themselves are very public about it. They'll say things in interviews. They'll make a show of it. And it's often really embarrassing. And I mean, it's, it's usually not as embarrassing as like Metallica, some kind of monster, but it's, it's not that far off either. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, you can just see from the way fans handle it, from the way fans treat all these things, that it's given a lot of weight. And it's funny to see that. Like, I remember I was talking to Miles, a while, like a few years ago, James Hetfield was on Joe Rogan, and I was talking to Miles about it because shows like that are always, you know, I, I like Joe Rogan. It's a good show. Like, I, I think Joe Rogan's done a good job doing what he does over the years. Honestly, he's done a way better job than I think just about anybody could do at what he does. Doesn't mean I'm not interested in everything he talks about or does, but I mean, I think it's, it's overall a net positive is how I see Joe Rogan. But, um, what I was going to say about it though, is like shows like that, like shows of where it's like Joe Rogan's an ultra celebrity at this point. He has very famous people, you know, respect, respected people. He has all kinds of people, but, it's like, for some reason, they still melt. Like, they still kind of fawn over musicians. It's like they're talking to a magician. And I do see musicians as magicians. Like, I mean, that's, like, I call Danzig a, mu um, <laughs> I'm going to confuse my words, musician, magician. I called Danzig a magician a while back, a dark magician. And, you know, I think great musicians are magicians. And uh, this is a real tongue twister. But still, like, you see where, like, these other people who are accomplished in their field will completely fawn over musicians. And, it, it, like, like the Joe Rogan, James Hetfield one is interesting in particular because, like, I mean, like, I love Metallica. Like, I have nothing but respect for what James Hetfield did at one point. But it's like it goes without saying that, like, Metallica's embarrassed themselves. And if you've seen some kind of monster, I mean, it's, it's really embarrassing and like how Jason Newstead left the band because they weren't letting him do any side projects. They told him he couldn't do any side projects. And like James Hetfield was worried that if James Hetfield or, or <laughs> James Hetfield was worried if Jason Newstead did a side project that 
basically their merchandise would compete with Metallica. Like to think that that would that anything would compete with Metallica in the early two thousands. Like to think that that would even matter. If anything, it would probably help Metallica. But you can just see where his ego is wrapped up in the business, and then. That whole documentary, I mean, this is low-hanging fruit, but it's low-hanging fruit for a reason because the, the, these guys themselves let their fucking balls hang down this low and they deserve to be kicked. But if you watch that, it's just like, they're basically like in ther- group therapy just to record an album. And it's like, these are guys who wrote classic heavy metal songs. You know, there's a reason why Metallica is one of the most famous heavy metal bands. I mean... Like the last few years, it's like I'll just like throw on, you know, some old Metallica like live recording or video, and it's like it's really fucking good. It's really there's a reason why they rose to the level they did and like bridged a lot of gaps. I have I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Metallica fan. I'll say it, but it's like watching them in this state. It's like and then to think, but then but then to like fawn over a guy like that afterward, and I mean. I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely kind of take Dave Mustaine's side if, if I need to take any side. Like when Metallica did their 30-year anniversary, Dave Mustaine played with them. He did some of the old uh, songs he wrote for them. And he's playing lead guitar, and he's play, He's using the guitar that he used when he was in Metallica. It's like the same guitar, and he's, he, it's fucking amazing to watch him play. Like, you know, he's an incredible guitar player, and it's seriously amazing to watch him rip through those songs again. You can tell he feels it. You know, you can tell Dave Mustaine is playing those riffs live for the first time in, you know, what, 30 years. And you can tell he actually feels it. But Metallica are acting like these clowns. Like, they're, like, chanting, like, Dave, Dave, Dave. They're getting the crowd to chant, like, his name, like he's like it's a Make-A-Wish Foundation event or something. And then uh, they're like, I don't know, they're just doing all these like goofy stage antics. They're acting like they're like entertaining kindergartners or something. And it's like, if you guys just were really stoic and like, you know, not saying you have to like stand still, but it's like, basically, if you played those songs the same way you did in the early 80s when you were young, where like you stood on stage and looked tough, like that would be fucking amazing because that's what Dave Mustaine is doing. Like follow his lead. Like, he's your guest of honor playing those songs live with you for the first time after all these years of rivalry and you guys are finally together and you act like clowns while this guy is just tearing it up on guitar and and acting like a badass. Because, I mean, that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, Dave Mustaine's a freak. And that's the funny thing, too. It's like you look at some of these guys now who are always kind of antagonists. Like, Dave Mustaine was always conservative, he was he always went out of his way to offend people you know and, and not even that he necessarily meant to offend i think i mean he obviously did but it's like he was always like you know he was like openly like he was anti gay marriage like as if as if dave mustaine's opinion on gay marriage even matters but like way back when like in the 80s like dave mustaine was like oh yeah like you know i'm not gay therefore <laughs> there shouldn't be gay marriage and, and he, you know, he basically he was this reactionary. I mean, and that's kind of like par for the course with like speed metal, with thrash metal. I mean, metal in general. It's not like that's that rare. But for such a well-known guy, I mean, Metallica wasn't doing that. Uh, and then he, and then he just kind of continued that way, like became a Christian, and you know, he's always been conservative. And then you have the misfits too. The misfits have always kind of fallen into that, like. 
I don't know what they said. I mean, if you listen to old Danzig interviews from the 80s, he'll talk about how basically he didn't... Like, he talked about the Misfits not being able to play in San Francisco because basically the local punks were, like, politically correct and, like, he said they, they like, tried to, you know, tell other people what to do and what they could say and not say. So, you know, it's it's just funny how, like, like that was an issue. Even, Even within, like, the punk scene of the early 80s, how San Francisco had a reputation for trying to police other people and the misfits weren't having it. And, like, and Danzig's obviously never really played that game. I mean, like, he's always used extremely... I mean, at some point, Danzig got heavily into, like, satanic erotica. You know, his aesthetic became primarily satanic erotica. And it's just always had, like, big-titted women. Like, his comic books are, like, orgies where groupy women get torn apart while getting gang-banged. Like, yeah, demon women with big boobs and, like, all kinds of things. I mean, the mother video... The blonde woman, it's like he's always gone for that sort of thing. So he's never tried. He's definitely never like gone for some sort of, uh, you know, I don't know. He's just always done his own thing. And then like more recently though, it just shows you that everybody gets sucked into the culture war. Because recently Danzig did an interview where he said like punk could have never existed with all this woke bullshit around today. Like he's like if punk if punk was coming around today, he said it never would have like been allowed to exist because the woke bullshit would have stopped it. And he, he's like spoken out against cancel culture. And it's like, no, not a surprise at all. If you know anything about Danzig, it's no surprise that he's not into that stuff. But like in this interview, he, he used the phrase woke bullshit twice. And I'm like, Oh yeah. Like even he, even Danzig, like he, he's done a great job existing in his own world for such a famous guy. I mean, really he is like on a cult level, but you know, Danzig's popular, you know, he's got a, a big following. I'd call Danzig famous, uh, but he, uh, you know, you know, for such a well-known guy, he really has done a great job keeping himself out of the public eye. But yet, like he, even he can't seem to avoid commenting on "quote unquote" woke bullshit. And I mean, it's like me. It's like I feel like I'm continually sucked into commenting on that too. I feel like I can't avoid it. It just seems to be. It's like either you're enforcing that shit or you're resisting that shit. It it, it seems extremely difficult to exist in between. And that's why everybody seems to comment on it. Everybody seems to have something to say. But so Danzig, you know, and then he made some comments last year where he defended Trumpsfeld's travel ban. Like he did some interview. I don't know how it came up, but like. He said, like, oh, people misinterpreted Trumpsfeld's travel ban. It means this, this, and this. And then, like, people were upset. They were like, Danzig's defending Trumpsfeld. And then he also made a comment about Planned Parenthood. Like, he said he supports abortion and Planned Parenthood, but he doesn't, he's against Planned Parenthood harvesting baby organs, which is, I don't know, there was something, I know, I've heard this story before. I've heard this story a, a number of times. Where like apparently there was something like that. I don't I don't want to say that that's exactly what was happening. There was something weird where like aborted babies, like babies who were born and then I don't know. It's it's some there's something weird. There was some like gray, definitely a moral gray area 
where like baby parts were being used for something. So Danzig was obviously paying attention to that. Like it's like an Alex Jones sort of talking point for sure. And so it shows you that the Danzig's paying attention to that sort of stuff. But then like when he made those comments, like, of course, like all these publications are just, they feel the need to like, you know, if someone like Danzig, like he's fucking, he's Danzig, just like let him say what he says and like, let the audience be the judge. But when articles came out from these like music publications that cover musicians, like they all felt the need to like explain why Danzig was wrong and, and like call him out and say like, Oh, like it sounds like Danzig's uh, defending Trumpsfeld. Like they couldn't just let his comments stand. Like, you know, just, just let Danzig say what he said in the interview about the travel ban let him say what he said about Planned Parenthood and let the audience decide whether whether or not they agree or disagree. Like this heavy editorialization and also there's this need to tell the audience Danzig's wrong about this. You know, this need to like be the Democrat, you know, uh, just the party guy. You got to be this, this partisan party guy and you can't just let – some musician who is very eccentric. He's dedicated himself to, to satanic erotica. Just let him say what he said. But then Jerry only too. Jerry only came like like people because people are sick. People are, are actually sick. Like people looked up uh, Jerry only's like campaign contributions. And they discovered that Jerry only contributed money multiple times to Trump's felt campaign. And that's not it either. Cause like when, when the misfits started their new, whatever you, you want to call it in the, in the mid nineties, they recruited this kid, Michael Graves, who like, it turns out like wasn't even a misfits fan. Like he had never even listened to the misfits or something like that. Maybe he had heard them, but he wasn't a misfits fan. And the, all those guys have a long history of doing that. Like, like Damien, who was the Samhain guitarist, and he was just a sick guitarist, like, he, he knew the Misfits because they were a local band, but he said he wasn't even really a fan. Like, I mean, I think he liked them and stuff, but it wasn't, they weren't a big deal to him. So it's like, they would recruit guys who, who didn't really care. They were just kind of like, okay, I'll play in your band. But anyway, uh, Michael Graves, like, he got recruited for the new Misfits, and he was obviously way younger than the other guys. And it turns out that he wasn't even a Misfits fan, which is kind of perfect, you know, despite all the issues, it's like that kind of makes sense that they just recruited a random dude. But it came out in the, I think it was like the, yeah, it must have been the early 2000s where it came out that uh, Michael Graves, the new Misfits singer, was a Republican and George W. Bush supporter, which is made even better because he's like this, he's just like this weird hot topic goth. Like if you've seen him now, he has like the sides of his head are shaved and he has like blue dreadlocks coming out like the center of his head. Like, he's just, like, some weird new metal guy who just, you know, you know, it, it, he had his, he, he was this Republican. Like, he, he beat all those alt-right people to the punch. Like, because, you know, all those alt-right people were anti-Bush. But yet Michael Graves was pro-Bush. And then you have Jerry Only. I mean, Jerry Only's been a Christian since the 80s. You know, it's funny how those guys, like, despite all the rivalry and stuff and, like, the fact that Danzig is the creative mind in that situation. Like he wrote all the music that Jerry only was, has been milking for decades. You know, it's all Danzig's music, but it's funny how they kind of mirror each other too, where 
like both all those guys got really into bodybuilding like danza got really into bodybuilding jerry and his brother i mean they were already jocks and, and athletes in high school and stuff jerry only got voted most popular in his high school yearbook no joke <laughs> uh and like doyle got voted most unique or something but you know, that's perfect that like jerry only was the most popular guy in his high school and every photo of him he's wearing sunglasses like there's all these photos of Jerry Only, like in his in his uh, football and basketball team photos, Jerry Only's wearing sunglasses. Whereas like there's only one picture of Danzig. It's just like there's a, there's a senior photo of Danzig where he's wearing a suit and his hair is insanely long. It's from like the early '70s because he's older than the other guys. It's the only photo that appears of him. Like there's no other sign that Danzig even existed, which is perfect because like that tells you everything. It's like he was the real freak. Like, Jerry Only and his brother were, like, athletes and popular and all this stuff, and Danzig's just the weird older guy who blew... And, I mean, I don't blame those guys for milking it. I don't blame Jerry and Doyle for milking Danzig's songs all those years. They're still doing it today. Because it's like they met this guy who just had insane ideas, incredible ideas, and was just writing these amazing jingles. And... <laughs> he basically gave them this idea and then, like, was like, okay, see ya. And so what else were they going to do? But it is kind of funny how, like, they, they all became bodybuilders. They both started playing heavy metal. Like, Jerry and Doyle had that heavy metal band. Uh, but the funny thing is, though, is they became Christian. And I, I've never seen, it, seen anybody make this connection. But it's like, as Danzig got more and more openly satanic, Jerry and Doyle got more and more Christian. And then, like, started a Christian band right around the same time Danzig was creating a satanic band. And it's like, that's totally a direct response to Danzig. Like they were, and what's funny is like during that time, they were still living in Lodi. Like they were all, all those guys were still living in the same New Jersey town with their different bands and rivalries and all that. That's it's funny to me because like Danzig didn't leave Lodi until I want to say like 94 or 92 or something. So like all throughout those years after the Misfits broke up and Samhain was playing and like the first number of years Danzig was playing, like Jerry and uh, and Doyle and, and Glenn all lived like within blocks of each other apparently. And uh, and some of the other guys too, because a lot of those guys were just locals. Like a lot of the, like, like Lodi was apparently a major townie hangout. Like if you grew up in Lodi, apparently you stayed in Lodi. And that, that includes the Misfits for many years. But I can totally see where, like, they started their Christian band while Danzig was becoming more and more known as this, like, satanic heavy metal band. And it's like, so they started their Christian band. Like, you know, that seems a little too obvious, but I can't help but feel like that's what happened. But that's an, another good example, because, I mean, I didn't get into the Misfits until maybe 1999 at the earliest and by then it's like at that point like everything was already available like everything had been reissued there was a box set like the new misfits had already been formed for a few years and i was able to avoid them like i i knew even back then like even being a kid that that wasn't what i was looking for the new misfits but like right away i learned about this rivalry i knew about these problems like it just seemed to be a given if you get into music you learn about this interpersonal drama between people. Like, it's even there with the Beatles. Like, I was never a Beatles fan, but you hear about it with the Beatles. And, like, when people leave a band, I mean, I guess that this is something I was going to mention earlier, where it's like, 
when someone leaves a band, there's such a high rate of bad blood. Like sometimes, yeah, a guy's just like playing in a band. He's basically just a live musician or a studio musician. He's he's just there. Like there's a lot of examples of that. And usually there's not usually there aren't huge issues with guys like that. But it's like anytime someone has any kind of meaningful role in a band, like they're gonna butt heads with other people in the band. And then if one of them leaves, it's usually for some bad reason. Like somebody had a problem, somebody had a fight. And it's just funny how that's there's such a high rate of that. Like even though it doesn't, you know, yeah, not it doesn't describe everybody. But even then when people like leave bands without a huff, like if you've ever known people in bands and you'll talk to them and they'll talk about leaving a band, like even if they didn't leave with any bad blood, they'll still say something shitty. <laughs> you know, they'll still say like, eh, you know, so and so blah blah blah, you know. And I'm not I'm not even saying that as a, a bad thing. Like, you know, people talk shit. It's part of life, it's fun. I do it, but it just, it seems to be built in that like, it's hard to leave a band apparently without having some kind of misgiving. Sometimes joining a band, sometimes being in a band, all that stuff. It's funny. It's kind of what attracts people to it too. Like people like that sense of drama. They like the storylines. It's pro wrestling in that way. And people have dreams like. I mean, when I was a kid, I used to think about, like, dream lineups. Like, usually supergroups aren't great. Uh, usually they're not great. But uh, I used to fantasize about supergroups. Like, oh, what if so-and-so played bass and these two guys were on guitar and this guy was on drums? And I remember, like, reading this internet post by a guy. He's like, I had a dream last night. And he, like, described this dream and it was, like different musicians from different bands and he's like and i got to the front of the stage and like so-and-so was playing keyboards and i just thought it was the funniest thing how it's like he's watching this like fantasy super group in his dream and then he gets to the front this is why i know he's telling the truth because like he gets to the front of the stage and then this other musician is like up at the front playing keyboards like it's this revelation and like i can totally relate to the but it's funny that that was, it shows you that that's like a fantasy in that guy's brain. Like, cause I used to think that way, like, what if so-and-so collaborated with so-and-so and it's an exciting thought. And I mean, it's, it's usually better left to, to the imagination than reality, but it's like, we think of that as like something special and sometimes it is, but I don't know. There's, there's just, there's such a, a story to it. Like, and we like to know, like, oh, are they friends? Oh, I found out that this guy is like best friends with the guy from this other band. Oh, did you, did you hear that? <laughs> did you hear that uh, Kirk Corbrain from Nirvana is best friends with uh, Dylan Carlson from Ert? Dylan Carlson from Ert. Ert. That's, a, that's true. Kirk, Corb Kirk Corbrain was best friends with Dylan Carlson from Ert. And that was, that's kind of like a fun fact. It's like they're best friends. Like cartoon characters. They go shopping together. When one of them's going through a hard time, they talk to each other about it. So it's like we like the, the fights. We like the drama. We like, we like the, uh, the rivalries between bands, between ex-members of bands. I mean, with the Beatles, that's the classic like woman being involved storyline. And 
like usually you don't hear as much about that in other bands, but you will get stories about how like, I mean, I was just reading about some band where like somebody, I don't know, it was Megadeth, where like Dave Mustaine kicked somebody out of the band in the 80s because he thought the guy was trying to make a move on his girlfriend. So it's like you bring women into the mix. I mean, it's a tribe. And that's the interesting thing about bands too, is like usually when they're new, they do everything together. Like they'll even live together. Like you think about Morbid Angel where they all lived in a house together and just played Morbid Angel all day, every day. And it sounds incredible, but it's like this weird little tribe. And then as bands get more established and bigger and, you know, as they kind of probably get sick of each other, it's like they spend less time together. And then they, uh, and that's too, when you start to see like more of a rotating cast of people. But early on, like they tend to like really stick to each other. And a lot of that's just like the excitement and the momentum of it all. But it's also just funny because it's like they form this tribe. But then it's like when someone leaves the tribe, it's like there's a high chance that they, they're excommunicated. And there's a good chance that that ex-tribesman is bitter and he's going to start his own new tribe. Like you think about like Dave Mustaine starting his own tribe. Like, oh, Metallica. Screw Metallica. I'm going to start my own tribe. And he did. I mean, he... He really did. St- and that's the interesting thing. Kind of like kind of like Jerry and Doyle being this like Christian antithesis to Danzig, but they're both bodybuilders. They're both into the same things. They're both kind of conservative. Like they still kind of mirror each other. And some of that might just be the fact that they're New Jersey Italians. Like when you think about the misfits being conservative, which is like, that's cool to me. Like some people are like, oh, punks. Can you believe it? They're, they played punks. They, they were punks and they're... Con- you can't be a conservative punk. You got to be like the dead Kennedys and re and, and use your Twitter to retweet Kamala Harris, you know, because supporting mainstream Democrats in 2020 is totally punk. But, um, you know, with, uh, anyway, before that, for that blast of bitterness, you like that bitter blast. That's what we call a blast of bitterness. Um, I mean, the Ramones were conservative. Like, there were... Johnny Ramone, was it? Like, I mean, he was he was openly pretty conservative. I mean, they would pose in front of anti... Like, there's that famous photo of the Ramones where they're, they're posing in, in front of an anti-commie graffiti. A graffiti. Anti-communist graffiti. So it's like, there are undercurrents of that. Like, punk wasn't necessarily explicitly political. And at that, like, not explicitly uh, liberal... You know, I mean, I'd say it was it was pretty liberal, but not leftist. And there is a distinction between liberalism and leftism. I mean, I feel like punk kind of operates in that. Like, obviously, anarchy is closely associated with punk and it's been mocked like like punks. You know, I mean, that's become flanderized. I mean, punk is a good example of flanderization in general. Like, punk became completely flanderized very quickly. Metal, less so. Like, I feel like metal was already pretty flanderized. Like, a lot of metal was already over the top. And so, even though, like, it's gone in... I'd say, like, the interesting thing, like, being a metal fan is it's gone in stupid directions... You know, you think about genres of metal that are just bad. But it's that's not really like a, a caricature of it. 
like there are caricatures and they suck. Like when when metal gets too caricatured, when it gets too flanderized, it sucks. But I guess it's like it starts from a place where it's already over the top. So it's like there's less room to become flanderized. Whereas like punk, you can see where it became very flanderized. It became this uniform. It became this caricature. And like at its core, I don't want to go too deep into the politics or anything, but like at its core, like I do believe a large section of early punk, like legitimately upheld anarchistic views, anarchistic views. I do believe that. And, but I also believe there was this sort of libertarian side of punk. And I think the misfits fit into that. Like when you look at their politics today, like when you look at the things Danzig has said over the years, I I don't want to put him in a box and call him libertarian. I wouldn't want to be called libertarian. I don't consider myself libertarian. I don't think Danzig has said that. I'm not speaking for dancing, okay? But you do see where, like, there is this sort of, like, in the same way that libertarianism and anarchism are sort of two sides of the same coin. Like, you think about, like, conservatism and uh, progressivism being two sides of the same coin. Like, you can kind of see that with anarchism and libertarianism, and they're actually not insanely far away from each other. Like, they actually have a lot in common, And there's this whole new undercurrent of anarchists and libertarians kind of joining up. Like, because both of them are equally dissatisfied with modern politics, at least in the West. So we're seeing this kind of union between those ways of thinking because they aren't dramatically different. Like, they obviously have some different values, but they aren't too different when it comes down to it in terms of just what they want and how they approach things. And so I think it it makes sense that punk on one hand had this anarchistic side, but then there was this other side. And like, you can see that with Danzig too, where like, I was listening to an old interview, an old tape interview with Danzig from, I think it was 1986. And he says, this is a business to me. (laughs) He's like, this is a business. And then I'd heard an interview with Damien, the guitarist for Samhain, he was like, oh yeah, Glenn sees this as a business. But that said, it's like he's also, he writes everything. He's clearly an artist. Like at no point do you listen to Glenn Danzig and think he just sees this as an opportunity to make money. I mean, he has a beautiful voice. He has incredible range. Danzig could have easily done, I mean, he's never milked his, his stuff. That's the thing. Like he could have created his own misfits in the 90s to counter the other misfits. He could have easily milked the misfits way more than he has but all he ever did is include some misfits covers into his live shows as danzig so it's like he like basically my point is glenn danzig could have done a lot more if he was just motivated by money and finances and i do believe he cares about those things but like when he when he himself said that he sees this as a business and when damien said that too I don't interpret that as he sees it purely as a financial affair. I mean, clearly he's an artist who puts a lot of thought and time and care and has a a very rare and um, almost supernatural ability to make music. Uh, So it's like I, I wouldn't boil it all down to business. But like I think what that is, he takes that mentality with him. Like, if he's going to do a band, like, he was doing The Misfits, so he decided to run a record label, he decided to, you know, run a tight ship, 
And the problem apparently was that like the band didn't take it as seriously. Like they wanted to goof off. He wanted to spend all of his time practicing, recording, working on merchandise, sending fan club mail out. You know, for him, it was like 24 seven workaholic every, and he like Danzig didn't drink. He didn't do drugs. So it was just like 24 seven working on this project. And uh, so it, that is a business. You know, even if there is a creative spirit in that business, which there obviously is, it's like that's running it like a business. It's not just a mess. And that's that's why it's this almost more libertarian idea where it's like, oh, we're going to participate in this DIY market. We're going to make wild music that nobody's ever heard before, but we're going to run it, you know, because we can do this, we're going to run a very tight ship and do it well. You know, that's sort of the libertarian ideal it's like nobody's going to regulate me nobody's going to stop me from doing what i want to do but i'm going to take it very seriously and have sort of a conservative mindset about it you can see that in what danzig's done i wouldn't call him a libertarian but you can see where like they kind of inhabited a more libertarian side of punk i mean i would even say black flag did in their own way they kind of had the same sort of mentality i don't know i, I don't imagine their politics I don't imagine anyone from Black Flag was a Trumpsfeld supporter, uh, but they're also West Coast California guys, so there's a cultural difference there too. Uh, who knew? Who knew that I would get into punk analysis, really deeply analyzing punk politics? But I, I think there's something to it. Like, I mean, on some stuff I was working on, I'm working on, I was working on some writing a couple of weeks ago related to the mafia. And like one of the angles that I was getting at is that the mafia is kind of like an aggressive libertarian organization where it's like they take the freedom that something like libertarianism allows. And the mafia is by and large a conservative phenomenon, like culturally conservative, but almost all of them have always supported the conservative candidates in Sicily, in the US, even today, like they're all Trump supporters. They're all Republicans, all of them. I'm not even kidding. They're all fucking mafia members, whether they're Sicilians, whether they're born here. It doesn't matter where they're from. If you go to their Facebook pages, because some of them do have Facebook pages because it's we live in the modern times or like their relatives Facebook pages, they all are like posting Trump supporter memes. You know, it's amazing. And then if you go back to like Sicily in the 1800s, they almost always supported conservative candidates. And I think the reason for that is, is because it's not that the mafia necessarily lines up with like hard right conservatism like the mafia had huge issues with the fascist government so it's like part of that's because they got targeted by it but it's like i think the mafia generally they don't like the hard right because that then ends up hurting the mafia but it's like they do like this like they do prefer a conservative leaning government because that allows them to do more that allows them to be more autonomous, you know, because the fewer societal societal regulations mean less scrutiny on the mafia. So, you know, it's it's sort of built into their survival to favor conservatism. And then they're culturally very conservative. Sicilians are very conservative people. But then, like, I mean, Glenn Danzig is a Sicilian. Glenn Danzig's family comes from Sicily. And, you know, honestly, not to go too far off into the weeds here, but like, I've been talking to Sicilians, 
you know, I mentioned the guy who was in the mafia and his friend that who was an associate of the mafia. I spoke to them. My friend, who's a, a mafia historian, he lived part of his childhood in Sicily. So I've gotten to know these Sicilians. And there's certain traits that, you know, I've talked about being a Scandinavian. And even though it's only part of my heritage, it was the, it was the, the heritage that was emphasized. It's the one that I'm most familiar with. It's where my last name comes from. You know, I, I, it was a part, you know, it was a large part of my childhood. And like, but how there's certain traits in being a Swede that I recognize, you know, you can see it in Sicilians as well. And like the way that Glenn Danzig operates is Sicilian is all heck. Like he absolutely runs, he's very secretive, but he's also very serious. He's, he's very controlling over what's his. He doesn't like anybody to tell him what to do. And then what's funny is like Jerry and Doyle, the brothers, they're like, uh, they're Italian American, but they're like, uh, well, cause like uh, uh, some woman did, <laughs> some woman did Danzig's genealogy and I saw it and yeah, sure enough, he's Sicilian. But then I found out that Jerry and Doyle are, I think Neapolitan, which is from the mainland of Italy and Neapolitans are a bit flashier. They're different. Like there are serious cultural differences. Like that guy, Michael D. Leonardo that I talked to, he talks about this a lot. Like he's, he was born in Brooklyn, but he's from a Sicilian background. And he talked about like how even today, like mafia members on the streets, like even the guys who were born in America and are a product of New York City, like they're still very aware of whose heritage comes from where. And that they believe that that kind of informs how people behave. And if you go through old FBI files and stuff, you'll find that too, that people from different parts of Italy really see themselves as different. And it's like, was the misfits problem? You know, was was the reason the misfits broke up because Danzig is a Sicilian and the brothers are Neapolitan? Uh, you know, I'm not going to say that, but it's like, it's interesting that you can see these just in the way that they handle a band, in the way that they run, they want to run things. And I don't know. Danzig's a, a fucking stereotypical Sicilian, as far as I'm concerned. I don't. I don't even know if he's ever addressed it. But it's like he's got all of just the the classic qualities. And I'm not, I'm not even talking about like mafia. I'm just talking about culturally. I've learned a lot about uh, Sicilian history and just like the cultural demeanor, like the sort of mindset they have. And Danzig is that to a T. And I didn't know that until recently. And when I read that, I was like, of course, I should have known. I feel like I intuitively knew that. I don't know. We're really off in the weeds, aren't we? But you can see where, like, I mean, some groups, like the misfits to me never stop being mythical. Like, even though I know all this mundane stuff about them, even though I have no illusions about them, I mean, the more mon you know, the more mundane details I find out about them after all these years, the more mythical they become somehow. And it's weird. Like, I, I don't feel that way about a lot of bands. A lot of bands that I had a more mythical view of when I was a teenager came and went. I might still like them, but I no longer put them on a pedestal. For whatever reason, the Misfits, Samhain, Danzig, those 17 years specifically, I still put that on the highest pedestal. I still feel like a kid again. Like I still feel like a complete fan. It's wonderful. It's good to have those things. And like nothing can take it away either. Because I mean, you think about, like you can get like Misfits shower curtains at Target. 
Like they've sold that brand. Like you'll see teenagers with like the crimson skull on their socks. And you don't even know if they've even heard the misfits or they were just like, oh, skull socks. They got some skull socks. And you know what? I don't even care. It's like, it's not even one of those things where I'm like, hey, they're not real fans. They're not even real fans of the misfits. Oh, you, oh you're telling me that you didn't know that, uh, you, you didn't know what year they all graduated from Lodi High School? You can't be a real misfits fan, you know? I don't even feel that way. Like I, it's, that's how you know that you really love something is if like, even when you see it everywhere you go now, even when it's been milked and marketed and branded like the misfits have, like the fact that none of that takes any of the magic away tells you there really is some magic to it. And I waited a long time, but I finally watched some of the footage from the Danzig reunion, like, or the, uh, the Misfits reunion where Danzig did vocals in two, uh, it was 2016. I felt it. I don't know. I mean, I, I only saw this like cell phone footage. I could feel the magic though. Like you could feel in the same way that like watching Dave Mustaine play Metallica songs again, you could tell that he felt it like seeing Danzig rip through Misfits songs. You could tell he felt it. And what was so insane about it, like how ingrained those songs are in him is like he hit all the parts perfectly. Like, obviously, his voice sounds like older Danzig now. Like, he doesn't sound like the young 25-year-old or whatever he was back in the day. But he still, like, manages to get the right sounds. But more importantly, he hits all those, like, all those little parts that sound incidental, and maybe they were. Like, where he'll just make a noise, like, some, like, even the background vocals. I was like, even, you know, Jerry only even nailed all those background vocals, like, or just a certain word is emphasized in a certain way. I was like, they were ready for this. You know, you could tell that it felt really good for those guys to play those songs again. And then the fact that they didn't immediately milk it. Like, that's the thing. Danzig, is he's never really milked things. He's done what he wants. He's, like, made goth horror movies. He's made sleazy, satanic, erotica comic books. He's gone off on random tangents and whims with his music. But he's never really milked anything. He's never really milked the past. You know, he's kept it available. Like, he's wanted the Misfits available. He's wanted Samhain available. He's done those Samhain reunion shows. But it's like he's never really taken it as far as he could. Like, they never recorded a new Samhain album. Like, when he and the Misfits got back together for those shows, they didn't turn it into, like, an endless tour. They just do it selectively. As far as I know, they haven't recorded an album as that lineup. So it's like they haven't done all the things they could do. And I think that speaks to his character. Because you don't find that very often. I mean, you find that people just make terrible decisions. And it's like, at least the terrible decisions he's made musically, like when he's released albums that are just not good, or they were trying to keep up with the times, or he was just he went in a direction that just didn't end up going anywhere. You know, at least it's his. Like, you don't feel like he was just doing it because someone pressured him to. You end up feeling like, oh, yeah, he, he went in a shitty direction because he's been doing this forever. He's getting older. He's trying to explore different things. It didn't work. But it, it still felt like Danzig did it. It's like, oh, yeah, I don't, I'm trying to think of the name of that album. It, it, I think it's Danzig 6. Because Danzig 6 was the one where I think everybody was kind of like, what the fuck? 
If that's the one I think it is. Because he, I mean, despite being such a fan, despite like having the lyrics to all of his songs just like buried in my soul, all the riffs, all those little inflections, all those weird little sounds that seem random, but then you see him do them live again in 2016. And you're like, man, this is perfect. But, uh, what was I going to say? Like, yeah, I guess, I guess the point I was making is just to, like, even when he's done stuff you don't like, you still feel like it was Danzig who did it. And therefore it's okay. Rather than, Oh, he was trying to, to be trendy. He was trying to do what somebody else told him to do. You know, so it's like, at least there's that. It's like his mistakes are his. And that's just rare. I mean, it's, it's rare to find that. And I mean, I don't know that somebody like that could have existed at any other point in time. Like, you can't really imagine a Danzig, like, somebody like that couldn't really come out today. Like, maybe in their own way. You know, I don't want to wall myself off into, like, the old man tower where I don't believe anything magical can ever happen again musically. Like I was talking to my friend Jason, who was sent like a while back, and a friend of ours had written something really good about the decline of underground music. But we were just kind of like going back and forth, like on that general topic. And I mean, I tend to, I mean, it's hard for me to, I don't get excited about very many new things, almost none. You know, I'll get excited about old things that I previously missed or overlooked, but it's very rare for me to get excited about something new. And I don't, you know, I, I'm naturally conservative in that way with my taste, I think, on one level, but it's like I do genuinely feel that, <laughs> that there's not that much worth getting excited about just with the way our culture has gone. I do feel like we've entered a void. And maybe later I'll look back and be like, oh, this was good, this was good. I'm not closing myself off to it. But I do tend to feel like things have declined, at least the things that I value about creativity have declined musically for sure. And my friend Jason, though, was like, well, yeah, but like, I mean, you know, some of this might be like that old man syndrome where like we're not aware of what's going on in electronic music or hip hop that is refreshing. And I mean, I'll, I'll totally own up to that. Like, I don't know. And maybe I'm not in a position. Maybe I am getting old. You know, because back when I was like 18, getting excited about something, 25-year-olds seemed very old. Being a 35-year-old isn't old in the grand scheme of things, but in this youth culture, in this world where like creativity is prioritized, you know, 35 is definitely not, you wouldn't, you don't necessarily think of it as a, as like a, you're not in position to necessarily know what what the youth are even feeling, I guess. And that sounds really cheesy. You're not in the position to know what the youth are really feeling. Like, I'll admit that. But I, I still think I'm pretty open. I feel like if something really hit me in the right place, it wouldn't matter when it was made or what it was. And I just I very rarely come across that. But I'll readily admit, like, I don't I don't keep track of electronic music. I don't I don't listen to any hip hop at this point. So I wouldn't be able to tell you what's cool or what's relevant in that. But speaking for my own taste, it's just, it's hard to find things. Um, but just in terms of like someone like Danzig, like coming into existence, it's like, here's a guy who like proved himself in the ring, basically, by getting involved in the, the first wave of 
underground punk running your own record label. Like, I mean, he released his own records. He made his own merchandise. He did everything himself. He wrote all the music. He got people to perform it with him. You know, he created this very unique aesthetic that still speaks to many people. It's turned his band into an extremely popular band with, with a long legacy, inspired a lot of different types of people. So it's like he really proved himself on that level. And it's like, even though there's people doing DIY things now, and they have been, I mean, even even just in the last 20 years, someone like Danzig, it's like that, that route is already so paved and there's, there's so much LARP to it. You know, I hate to even say that, but it's like there is so much LARP to like, you know, when someone like runs their own record label today, it's like, it's, it, I think it's awesome because you should, you should take things into your own hands if you can, but you also shouldn't have the illusion that you're doing what people were doing in like 1977. Cause there was a necessity to it then. Whereas now it's, it's almost more of a fetish. It's like an attachment to the medium. And I say that because I prefer that. Like I, I, I fetishize that medium. I'm attached to that medium too. So it's like, I find it preferable, but it doesn't change the fact that it's an attachment. It doesn't change the fact that it's fetishistic. And that's true for a lot of things that were once a necessity or once a matter of practicality. I mean, there's a reason why like sexual fetishes sometimes involve things that we are, are now considered antiquated. Like some guys, like, I mean, there, when I was a kid, like, like a teenager, like I used to always hear about older guys who were really into like untrimmed pubic hair. Because, like, they had come of age at a time where that was normal. And so, in a time where that became abnormal, you know, there was a period of time, I don't know what it's like now. I'm a, I'm a sexless alien monk, so I can't tell you what it's like now. But for many years, pretty much most of my teenage and adult life, people at least keep their groin fairly trim. And then there was like a whole trend to shave it. And, you know, this isn't, I don't want to talk about this stuff, but I'm just using it as an example. Um, but like during that time when like the norm was for somebody to have trim pubic hair, like men who grew up like with 70s porn and that kind of thing were like, you know, I miss that. Like they fetishize this thing. And I mean, this is a weird example because it's like, it's natural. It's like, that's what naturally grows. But still, it's the same thing where it's like, it's like being like, like before the big vinyl boom, before like normies started buying vinyl again, like vinyl was very fetishistic too. And I mean, it still is like, even though normal people are buying it, I can't believe I said normies, but some sometimes those things slip, but, uh, you know, it's still pretty fetishistic, even though it's become popular to buy vinyl again, but it's, it's not necessary. Whereas like it's at one point it was at one point buying vinyl was how you heard music and then it became something where you you sort of fetishize the feel, the look. Why am I even going on about this? I guess just to say that it's like at one point, like like 
what Danzig did wasn't by choice. Like when a guy like that, like carved out a niche for himself in the late seventies, early eighties, it wasn't, while it was totally by choice, like the route that he used wasn't by choice. Like the only way to get his music out there was to release EPs and records. You know, the only way to make merchandise was to screen print it himself. The only way to make artwork was to like cut apart Xerox horror art and and like screen it and draw stuff you know it's like that was the only way to do things and so like now we're at this point where you can still do that and there's a lot of people who prefer that including me like i i really i still don't see like a digital release as a legitimate release i also accept it i totally accept music just coming out digitally i've done that myself before uh but uh it's still, it's not the same. It doesn't feel proper. But then too, with time, it's like, even like the manufacture of records and stuff, like, like newer records, like newer printing methods, like they're not the same either. It's like something can't be completely reproduced from the past. And, uh, but like if someone was doing that today, like if somebody had Danzig's vision and his talent, like they probably would just be releasing things on Bandcamp. Maybe they'd be releasing things through tape and maybe they'd be doing the same things that people are doing now where it's like, you know, where people do release CDs, they do release tapes, they do release LPs, they do release things on Bandcamp, they kind of do it all. but it's not really a matter of necessity. And as a result, you don't really carve out a niche. You just kind of come out and like you satisfy some people, but there's so much stuff. And and that's kind of what I was getting at too. When I was bringing up like the fact that all these old bands have fractured into like multiple versions of the same band. And just that these, these bands don't just stop. Like, there's this insane idea that, like, if you had a band that was successful, you just do it forever and never stop it. And, it, you know, that it is because it's a brand. It is because it's a business. But then why do we still allow these people to be on such a pedestal? Like, if the norm in music is to be like, oh, I had a good idea that took off once. I'm going to do it forever. And I'm just going to get a revolving door of younger and younger musicians to play the instruments until I can't do it anymore. Like, I know this sounds like, I don't know, this probably sounds mean-spirited, and I don't mean it to be, but it's just like, I don't know, it's just, there's something cheap about it. And I do feel like it, it takes away from a band's legacy to to do things like that. And at some point too, like there, there was this trend toward reforming that I don't feel like was there before, where a lot of bands that broke up in the '80s and '90s started reforming in the 2000s. Like, there's actually a common phenomenon I've noticed, even with relatively unknown bands, where like let's say there was a band that recorded some material in the '80s or '90s and broke up, and maybe they did one album or even like demos, and then suddenly, like because we live in this reissue boom that's been going on for years, but it's like. Because we're because we've run out of like interesting new things, like people have to reissue everything from the past now. 
Like any band who released a demo in the eighties, like there's a good chance that somebody has released that on vinyl as a reissue because it's like, we're just, we've mined everything else. And hey, this was recorded in the 80s, therefore it sounds authentic, and maybe it is good, but still, it's like there's this idea that reissue it all. We have to reissue it all, and you can see that going on everywhere. But sometimes you'll, you'll see where like an obscure band who only did one thing in the 80s or 90s will get their material reissued, and then because they now have like a now they have a following, they, they, they actually restart this band that had like one demo. It's the craziest thing. I've seen it happen with like even extreme metal, as they call it. I've seen death metal bands, black metal bands, just power metal bands, where it's like they haven't played music together in 25 or 30 years, but because their one demo got reissued and suddenly like people are posting about it on Instagram, let's reform the band. <laughs> and sometimes they're good, though. I mean, what are they called? Um, oh, what are they called? Uh, Pagan... Uh, Oh, what do they call them? I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on it. Um, I need to look this up. Give me a second here. Pagan Altar. I'm a fan. I'm just, it's late. It's very late. Uh, Pagan Altar, like they reformed and the material they did afterward wasn't it wasn't quite the same, but it definitely sounded... I mean, they were still doing the same thing. You know, Pentagram's done that many times. I mean, there's some examples. I mean, I guess it just... It once again comes down to whether you like it or not. Like, if a band reforms or a band does a reunion and you like it... Like, I mean, I, I just said that I liked the 2016 Misfits reunion, and it took me, like, f five years to watch it. Like, I waited five years. I mean, it, if I was 14 or 15 and you told me that... Glenn Danzig did a reunion with the original Misfits. I would want to see it right away. I would want to hear it right away. But it just it, it shows you like how skeptical and cynical I am that like that happened and I didn't even think to despite loving the Misfits to this day, I didn't even think to look it up and like be like, "Oh, I actually want to hear that." And I did, and I was like, "The magic is there." It's not the same, it's not the same exact thing, but it's worth it. It's worth watching. It made me feel something. And so it comes down to like just whether you like it or not. But it seems like there's a high rate of failure. And I feel like we're kind of past the point of taking these storylines that seriously. I think these storylines, this drama that kind of goes along with music and musicians and band members, I think we've been so saturated in it and like newer musicians, like they are less interesting. If for no other reason than the fact that we're so exposed to them, like usually they build themselves up nowadays through social media by like showing you into their lives. There's more interaction with them. Like at a certain point, musicians could be distant. They were larger than life. They were mysterious. Even if they were very famous, there was a mystery to them. And so, like, even just the way that musicians come up, it's like they have a social media footprint. They have an online footprint. There's less mystique. We can kind of see what they're doing. And maybe this is where I'm old and jaded, but it's like you can kind of see the trick that someone is doing these days. You can kind of, like, pick up on the magic trick.
but uh, I don't know. It's, it, it definitely brings out strange opinions in me. Like, I've never been able to get to the bottom of why I have, I don't know, why I have the opinions I do on music and musicians and why it's been one of my obsessions, why music was an obsession of mine, not just on the level of wanting to listen to it, but why I was myself taken by all this other stuff. And it's, you know, it's part reality and it's part fiction. You know, and I think what's great about music is it's always blended those things. And I think back to childhood, like being on the playground and kids would be talking about lyrics. Like the radio station that everybody listened to when I was growing up was 107.7 The End. It was, I guess, what you'd call the alternative rock station. They played, when grunge was big, you'd hear a lot of grunge. Just whatever the, the popular alternative rock, you hear some local stuff. But like when they, whenever there was a new song, like kids on the playground tended to treat it like it was serious or real. Like if a song was about drugs or it sounded like it was about drugs, you had a tendency to assume that it was, oh, these guys use a lot of drugs. Or even like, even a few years later, like Eddie Vedder, Pearl Jam did a cover of Last Kiss, originally by J. Frank Wilson and the Cavaliers. Really good teen, or tra teen tragedy song from the 50s. Famous song, uh, Last Kiss. But... When that came out on the radio, a lot of people didn't realize that it was a cover. And, you know, and I don't blame them. I don't, you know, you're not necessarily going to know that something was a, was a popular song decades before you were born. But it's a song about, like, a car accident where this guy's girlfriend dies and Eddie Vedder's singing about it. And I remember kids talking about that song and they were like, man, Eddie Vedder's girlfriend dying. <laughs> they were like he's singing like that's a sad song like did you know that Eddie Vedder's girlfriend died in a car accident you know Eddie Vedder's you know Eddie Vedder's wife died in a car you know things become these rumors and that's sort of the beauty of it too though it's like pre-internet nobody's gonna look it up like you couldn't look that up the only way you could know that that was a cover would be if you owned the CD and like looked at the writing credits, which nobody is going to do. Or if the radio station said like, oh, this is a cover, which they might not do. So basically you're left with to your own devices. Like there was no way to go home and look that up. You would have to either read it or see it somewhere. And that didn't always happen. So kids go from like hearing Eddie Vedder do this cover to thinking like Eddie Vedder's girlfriend died in a car accident and he's like singing a sad song about it. And not even just stuff like this. There was just this, t just this tendency to like take musicians very seriously when they said something or did something. Like even if they made a public statement, there's this tendency to be like, oh, they're telling the truth. And like, like speaking of the Misfits and Samhain and those guys, I saw those guys as larger than life. And like I thought... Well, I, well, I knew, like, I always knew that it was theatric. Like, when you look at Sam Hain and they're covered in blood and their hair is dyed black and, you know, they're going for this sort of gothy look. Like, I always knew that was theatric. But I did kind of think, of, I was like, these are bad dudes. These guys are tough. These guys are bad guys. And then, like, seeing an interview with Damien, he's just like this geek, like seeing an interview with London May or, or Steve Zing, like these other guys who were in Samhain, they're just kind of like like nice, soft-spoken dudes. Like they were just kind of 
they were dudes who were playing punk music in the late 70s and early 80s in a weird little New Jersey town. And, you know, <laughs> it's like they, they didn't have time to be like murderous bikers. Like even though some of them looked that way, like if you look at at Danzig in the early 90s, like if you watch live videos of Danzig, it's like they're intimidating. Like Erie Vaughn's like six foot five. They all have their hair dyed black. They all have like facial hair. Like they look like intimidating guys, but it's like those guys were like scrappy little punks who have been playing music nonstop and like touring and making merchandise. Like those guys haven't had time to be killing people. They haven't had time to be living these wild lives. But when you're a kid, you see that and you just, you think like, man, those guys are serious. Those guys are scary. They're, they're scary. And then going back to like seeing those guys on, like seeing musicians on podcasts, you see where like even somebody like Joe Rogan or these, these celebrities will talk to musicians like they are the real deal. And I think part of that is just the fact that musicians are magical. Like even somebody who has no creative spirit and is just really good at guitar. I mean, there's a reason why people like like shred. You know, they, they like guitar shredding bands. Like they'll just listen to a guy who's just shredding and there's really no heart and soul in it. But yet there is something almost transcendental. I mean, they're not almost. I mean, they're even in just like heartless, emotionless shredding that can activate something inside of you. Even if it's just totally clinical. But we still have a tendency to like look at all musicians, if we're a fan at least, with a certain amount of reverence. And I do still have that for some people. Like I, I probably would be a fanboy if I met certain people. Or I, was, I would probably be starstruck, more likely. But I can't really explain why. Like, around the time that I got into the Misfits, I also liked Black Flag a lot. Like, I wouldn't say... I don't have a problem with Black Flag now, but I can't ever imagine myself listening to him. But at the time, like, I thought Henry Rollins was really cool. When I was, like, 14, 15, I was like, yeah, Henry Rollins rules. I don't really feel the same way now. Like I, I don't I definitely don't put him on the same level as Danzig or someone like that. And I don't even mean that in a disrespectful way. It's just sort of like as I've gotten older and my taste has changed, like I don't I just I don't look back at Henry Rollins and be like, dude. You know, and so it's like you don't even necessarily choose the people that you see that way. And for whatever reason, Danzig and those guys because, I mean, I'll see the name Franchi Coma. You know, I'll see the name of a guy who played guitar for one Misfits album. And he was just some local kid. He was just some guy from New Jersey who played in another band and they got him to play guitar for their album and then he left. But because he played guitar on this pivotal Misfits album, when I see the name Franchi Coma, it's almost like I get, a, I get a chill down my spine. Arthur Googie. You'll see these names of these guys who were just random guys who happened to play in this local band led by this maniac, Glenn Danzig. And like like a million other people, they got burned out and they left or whatever happened. They didn't stay with the band. But because they were part of this band, and like I don't think it's just me being a teenager and remembering what it felt like to be a teenager. Because, like, I mean, the interesting thing about the Misfits is that I described it a little bit ago. It's kind of a living collage. 
And, you know, I was talking about that Star Wars guy recently. I was talking about the, the old man who runs that Star Wars shop in Kirk, Kirk, Kirk Corbrain's hometown and how he was in the news recently because he posted this silly anti-transgender thing in his Star Wars store window. But I, I was talking about his store on that episode about how it was just kind of junk together. It's this Star Wars store, but it's not some pristine collector shop. It's like a junk store. It's just all this Star Wars stuff just kind of you walk in and you're like walking into a living collage, too. And that's kind of the appeal of the Misfits as well, where it was like this, everything was just patched together and pieced together. And the music was that way too. Like when I got into the Misfits, it was like, I bought Static Age first, which is a weird introduction because that album had been unreleased until the 90s. It's my favorite album to this day. I think it's the most serious album. Like I love all the Misfits material. All the Misfits is just perfect to me. But like Static Age is more of like a perfect, it's punk, but it's it's more of a rock album to me. It's just, it's got, a, it's, it's, it's its own thing. But like aside from that though, it was like everything else I got, it always felt like it's like a collection. You get something and it's like, oh, it's the same songs that are on this other release, but it's a different recording. And like, even at that time, like being young, getting into that stuff, like I couldn't tell like how many layers of guitar there are. I didn't know what was going on, but you could tell if it was a different recording, you could tell if it was a different session. And so there was this kind of like this mystery to it. Like I can't imagine what it was like getting into the misfits in the seventies or eighties, especially the eighties where it was like, everything truly was just a mess. Because, I mean, they would release EPs that had, like, a few songs from some longer session. And then, like, ten years later, they would release more songs from that session. And then Glenn Danzig was, like, continually going into the studio and re-recording guitar parts himself or drum parts. So there's Misfits recordings where, like, it'll go from a song that features one lineup to a song with another lineup to a song with that same lineup, but Danzig recorded another layer of guitar because he didn't like how somebody else's playing sounded. Then it'll go to a track where Danzig's on drums. So it's like there's this constant like back and forth to a lot of these recordings. And like getting into it when I did, in like 99, 2000, whenever it was, everything was pretty well laid out. You know, the box set had come out. Static Age had been reissued. There were all these collections. Everything was re everything was available. Uh, it's I'm not remembering anything that was that elusive. Yeah, there were some bootlegs and stuff that I came across later, but for the most part, like all the misfit stuff was readily available and collected. But even then, you kind of had to. You were confused. It was kind of hard to figure out. Like, what the heck is Legacy of Brutality? Oh, it's these songs, but oh, the the production sounds different. Oh, this. There's a random live track in the middle of this album, you know, you'd have things like that. So even getting into it when I did, when everything was as streamlined as it could possibly be, it was still this like patchwork. It was still this collage of material. And that was sort of the appeal of it too, though. It's like the fact that even the Misfits, as big as they were, their discography was a complete mess. And like recently I've been re-listening to a lot of it for the first time in years because I listen to Samhain, I easily go through a Samhain Danzig phase like once a year if not more. But I 
I really don't listen to the Miss. I don't go through a Misfits phase. Like it's probably every two or three years, three or four years at this point. But every time I revisit the Misfits, I'm like, oh yeah, I still feel the same way about this. I I might even appreciate it more in certain ways. Just the fact that it exists. These the fact that this Italian kid, this Sicilian kid, was writing these dark jingles, and he was extremely controlling. He had this very clear vision of it. Meanwhile, it's just this like patchwork of ideas and it evolved into what it, what he is now. Um, I don't know. I'm tired. It's tired gushing about the misfits. I don't know. Just that, that effect though of like having to try to make sense of something. Like you think of so many bands where it's like, I remember this phenomenon when I was a kid where it's like you'd get into a band and you'd think that you were buying their first album because maybe that was the one you knew the most. Maybe that was like the biggest one. But then you'd find out that they had other albums earlier. And uh, so there'd be things like that. You know, some bands would release like demo collections. But it's like there aren't that many bands where you have to like really kind of go through a maze just to kind of figure out what you're even listening to. Like, the Misfits weren't a band where you're buying albums. Like, there's only a couple albums. Not only a couple albums. Only a couple albums. There's really only a couple of what you would consider traditional albums. And even those are kind of weird. Because the songs appear elsewhere. You know, even the, the their albums are kind of... They don't entirely feel like albums. But that's what you're dealing with. You're just having to kind of try to make sense of it. Like, I remember going to, like, Tower Records when I was first getting into the Misfits and like looking through the CDs and just looking at the track lists and just being like, these are the same tracks that are on this one. Like, which one should I get? But yet it shows you a lot about taste though, because even then I would form preferences. Like even back then I, I could, I clearly, I would clearly like some versions of Misfits songs more than others. And to this day, I feel the same way. Like the versions that I prefer today are the same versions I, rep- I I preferred when I first heard all this stuff. So that tells you something. And I mean, a lot of that has to do with like the magic. And I mean, when I was a kid, I wasn't really that into live music or not so much live music, live albums. Like I didn't like live albums. It was like my ears weren't adjusted to that. Like especially if something was raw. Like if a lot, I was just like, oh... A live album. There's going to be mistakes and I can barely hear anything. Why would you even listen to a live album? You can't even hear anything. Now that's what I appreciate. You know, now when I do listen to the Misfits or Sam Hain, there's a decent chance that like when I do actually listen to those bands that I'll throw on a bootleg or a live recording because it's like I can appreciate the music for what it is because it's still the great music. It's still the great band. But I'm hearing it like different. I'm hearing it a little looser. And and part of that too is just gaining a greater appreciation for raw sounding stuff. Because it's hard enough, like even hearing a well-produced professional album when I was a kid sounds like a wall of noise to me. So like you add in like a demo recording or a live recording when you're young and it's, it's very difficult to get your mind around. It's very difficult to know what you're hearing unless you already appreciate it, unless you're already a huge fan. But I'm at a point where, like, I, I enjoy hearing live albums. I enjoy all that, in some cases, more. 
like the sounds blend together a little better. You're just hearing something different. And two, it's part of it's just that magic, like talking about like even preferring different studio versions of the same Misfits songs. And my preference is staying the same even today. I mean, part of that's just that magic. It's that intangible factor. Like they were feeling it more when they recorded that version. There was something going on in their playing. There was something going on in the atmosphere, the performance, all of these factors. But there's some sort of, you know, greater, um, there's something greater emerging from it. And for whatever reason, the same band can play the same song any number of times. They can even record it with the same exact equipment. Everything can be superficially identical. But even then, you're going to have a preference for certain versions. You're going to feel it more. And sometimes that's not even the best performance. And if you've ever recorded music, you know this to be true. Or if you've ever heard your own music, you listen back and you're like, huh, you know, that version, for whatever reason, I know it's the best one. And it might even have a mistake in it. But something about it screams at you. Something about it glows and tells you this is the version. And so it's interesting that we do that as both creators and fans. We tend to kind of know. We kind of tend to know how to, I don't know, things take on a certain priority. And it's not, I don't, I don't believe that's something you can measure. I believe that's immeasurable. You can't teach that in any kind of, I mean, I took an art philosophy class in college and you can't, even art philosophy can't even really delve into why that is. Of course it can't. And I mean, it's the same thing though for like why certain, I mean, I don't know. I think about this a lot because I was talking a lot about how like some bands basically become a caricature of themselves. They become flanderized. They become just this brand with this revolving door of new musicians. And then maybe, maybe former musicians start their own version of the band under a, a, a different name. But you know, all this shit that goes on, like, yet every once in a while, there's a band that's just truly impressive, that's truly cool, and they stay cool, and that is Danzig to me. Like, even when he's wearing weird little bondage tank tops, like, even when Danzig is doing something where I'm like, huh, that's an interesting decision, I do feel like he's kind of maintained his cool. He's maintained who he is. I guess that's what I was saying earlier, where it's like, even when Danzig does something, and I kind of think, eh, what are you doing? It's still Danzig doing it. It still feels like it's him doing it. But thinking about like people who have always have kind of like maintained, I don't know. There's that band Toad Liquor. I don't know. I mean, they're 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 known. It, people who are into like doom metal know who they are. But I was talking to my friend about Toad Liquor because they have connections to Olympia. But they were this group of teenage boys playing like extremely heavy raw doom sludge sort of stuff doing it early on too like way before there was much of a trend in doing that like way before most of like the so-called sludge bands appeared like there were bands playing slow doomy music in the 80s obviously but i mean they were 
I, who knows where this these these guys came from? I mean, they were definitely into underground music and everything. And there's one guy who lives here in Olympia who's well known for being in some other local bands, and he's he runs a recording studio. There are rumors that he was one of the members. And there's a live video of them playing when they were super young. I don't see him in. I know what he looks like. I don't see him in this video unless he looked a lot different. But they've they've they had their stuff reissued by a big label, like pretty much the biggest modern doom label reissued their material a couple different times. And even then, though, nobody's come out of the woodwork to be like, "Yo, I, I was in that band. I was in that band, Toad Liquor. I was in Toad Liquor." Nobody's milked it. Nobody's exploited it. Like, even though they had their material from the early 90s, from the mid 90s, reissued by a huge label that gave them a bunch of new fans, including me when I was a teenager. All that stuff, like, came, that stuff got reissued when I was a teenager and I loved it. I still, it's still really good. Toad Liquor is awesome. Uh, and it's spelled like alcohol, liquor, L I Q U O R, Toad Liquor. Um, but uh, even then, that's like they didn't come out of the woodwork and be like, we're doing a re... I think they did record a new song. I think they did actually record a new, like one new song for a reissue as a bonus track. But that in, that says something in and of itself. The fact that they or like one of them would record a new song for this reissue, but not play a show, not record an album, just use it as this sort of bonus, this sort of like end ending note... I have a lot of respect for that. That's discipline and magic. I feel like, and, and watching this video of them, it's like this total mess. They're playing in an abandoned house and they're like these skinny little teenagers playing just extremely raw and heavy, doomy music. And their vocalist is too fucked up to do anything. You know, he's falling down and like headbanging and he's barely doing any vocals. But even then you look at it and you're like, these guys, there's, there's something here. There is absolutely something here. And it's just, that's what continues to interest to me about music is like those intangible factors. And a lot of it just has to do with your taste in it. But I mean, like, you know, every night to school night being an example where it's like the show is based around playing certain genres of music from a certain era. But there can be music that is superficially identical to the music I play on there but I would never play it and it never actually does anything for me. Like there's tons of teener pop. There's tons of doo-wop. There's tons of country music that has everything in common with the music that I highlight on every night to school night. It's identical in terms of production. Even maybe even songwriting is very similar. Performance is very similar, but it doesn't have any, it doesn't have that thing that catches me. And it's not necessarily a melody. It's not necessarily a hook. It's something intangible. It's almost like it glows. And the stuff that I'm into that's, that's withstood the test of time. I mean, there's things I like that don't glow. There's things I like that don't glow. Okay. There are, there are things I like that are more intellectual. And by that, what I mean by that is not like smart. When I say intellectual, I mean that it's something that you process mentally rather than you feel. I want to make that clear. Like I, I use the word intellectual on this show to refer to something cerebral. 
Like there's music I listen to and on an intellectual level, I say to myself, it's pretty cool what they're doing and I can appreciate it for that reason. And I, I used to be ruled by that more. Like while I've always had like a strong intuitive feeling about music, when I was getting into music as a teenager, there were things that I was into, but when I look back, I'm like, I didn't really care about that. I just thought it was interesting that somebody was doing it. And it was also something for me to be into. Like maybe I saw a band live and I thought like they were interesting. I didn't actually really like it, but I bought their album, you know, maybe even a t-shirt, maybe even a, maybe even a t-shirt. And, but it didn't, it didn't withstand the test of time. It, like, and it doesn't even mean it was novelty. It doesn't even mean I was following a trend. It just kind of means I liked the idea of it. I mean, I, I think that's what kind of what it is when you, when you appreciate music intellectually, you kind of like the idea of it. Whereas music that I fundamentally love, the idea doesn't even matter as much as just the glow it has. And that was a disconnect for me early on because, you know, I, I played music and stuff, but I'm not a musician. I'm not a real musician. And... I had friends growing up, though, who were into, really into music. Like, I had metalhead friends in junior high and high school. A lot of them grew up, like, a lot of them got into playing music through, like, Metallica and Megadeth and kind of branched out from there. Like, not into, not really into more extreme metal or anything, but just kind of, they got into music through, like, guitar world sort of, you know, stuff. Like, where it's, like, Dave Mustaine, you know, Kirk Hammett, those are the kind of guys that they looked up to. And those are great guitarists to look up to. But some of those kind of guys, they like branched off into like Tool. And I, to this day, I don't even know what Tool sounds like. I've heard Tool, but I never remember what they sound like. I've just never, Tool has just always felt extremely alien to me. I missed the window at time where I could have gone in that direction. And I'm kind of glad, like I missed that window when it was probably open to me. But like the people I knew who were really into, who were really into Tool, they would always talk about like, oh, Danny Carey's polyrhythms. Did you hear Danny Carey's polyrhythms? And then they'd have to explain to me what a polyrhythm is. They'd talk about something. It was they were very focused on the technicality. And I did like technical stuff myself. Like I was really into technical death metal for a while. And I appreciated the technicality of it, but I didn't know what they were actually doing. It just seemed like magic. Like when a tech, when a technical death metal band just like sh it's like a shred of notes, dissonant notes, but it sounds incredible. You know, like an alien keyboard or something coming out of a guitar. You know, I appreciated the technicality, but it was also just the magic of the entire thing. But I, I knew some people though who would listen to these bands that like had some sort of musical. Uh, like, they would appeal to, to the academic side of a musician. And some of them were popular bands, like Tool. Like, I knew people who were into that band, like Meshuggah. Meshuggah? Hey, we listened to, we're sitting around just listening to Meshuggah. Hey, you should come over. We're just, uh, we're going to be hanging out and doing a little barbecue and I'll listen to Meshuggah. Get to listen to some Meshuggah. I never knew how to say that band name. I, I, I really never even listened to them. Meshuggah. Meshuggah, baby. You get some Meshuggah? Hey, baby, you got some Meshuggah? 
No, not sugar. My sugar. No, there was this like whole group of bands though that dudes seemed to be really into, but it, it all seemed very intellectual. It was like we we like the polyrhythms. Oh, he's what he's doing here is this, and you can see well the rhythm he's playing on guitar is different than the rhythm he's playing on the the kick drum, and with the snare drum he's doing this, and oh, the accents are in this time signature. There's a lot of focus on time signatures, a lot, a lot of, and that's cool. Like, I mean, I'm, it's cool that people can be into that. It's cool that people can be scientific about music. I think that is cool. I mean, I think that is cool. Okay. It was just foreign to me, and it still is. It still is foreign to me. But I, I did that in my own way. Like, there was stuff. There was stuff that I listened to where it was like, yeah, it was definitely me liking the idea of it more than what it actually offered. I don't know, it's been a while since I feel like I've... I just don't check out that much music anymore. You know, I just don't. And when I do, it's it's extremely rare for me to just like the idea. Like, at this point, I don't even know... I can't even think of anything I've gotten into in the last, like, 15, 20 years... 15. Or 10, I don't know. It's been a long time since I feel like I've listened to something and been like, hmm, I don't feel this, but I like that they're doing it and I'm going to support it for that. Like, I just, I don't know. I don't feel that way anymore. Man, I, don't, I, I don't know. A part of me would like to see somebody like really map this shit out. Because people have come out with books, like somebody wrote a book about death metal. I mean, people have written probably a bunch of books about death metal. People have written all these books, all these like people's history of various underground music genres. Every band has a biography. Academics study music. They study the effects that music has on people, on plants. Oh, we found that if you listen to, if you listen to Mogwai when you study you're more likely to do well on the test. If you listen to, to Godspeed, ye black emperor, when you study, we found that you'd do better on... When you listen to classical music, we found that you'd do better on the test. When you study... When you study to peaceful and beautiful music, you do better. You're happier. We found that when you play Slayer directly into a plant, when you put the speakers directly next to a plant and play Slayer, the plant dies. We found that music makes the hair on people, the back of people's necks stand up when they like it. We're trying to figure out why people like music. There's people starving and people are doing studies on that. You know, so even just the academic study of, like, music's effect on people. Which I, I don't know why we even need to know that. We've, we've gotten so invested in these systems. It's like the joke I was making for a couple months there, where it's like some study came out this year about how crows have consciousness. They discovered that crows actually have reflective thought. And I was like, oh, gee, you so you spent all these 
billion billion dollars in a university to figure out what every pagan people's mythology already knew aren't you the people aren't you people at the universities the ones who are like all about listening to native americans who every single story they have is about how ravens and crows are conscious beings with spiritual and, and intellectual capacity, and yet you had to spend a billion billion dollars to tell us that crows have consciousness. I mean, it's just things like that. It's like the same when I hear about people like studying music too. It's kind of the same thing where it's like we haven't quite discovered why music causes an emotional reaction in people, but we're going to spend a billion billion dollars to find out why. They're going to spend a billion, billion, billion dollars to find out why the hair on the back of your neck stands up when you hear Motorhead. And then we're going to spend a billion dollars more to figure out why that guy doesn't give a shit when he hears, when he hears Motorhead. You have to spend a lot of million, billion, 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 billion dollars. I'm turning into Tom Bombadil. A billion dillando, dillarilla, bombadillo, billion, billion. Turning to Ned Flanders and Tom Bombadil. I'm becoming Flanderized. This show is a good uh, lesson in Flanderization. If you've listened to this show since the beginning, you have clearly witnessed the Flanderization of a man. But you know what? We need to study it. Somebody, you know, if anyone out there has connections, send this show to the psychology department of a major university. Make sure they get funding. Make sure they get a grant. And tell them, figure out what the heck this guy's doing. Can you figure out what the heck this guy's doing? He's, he, he's been talking about Danzig. He seems to have a high opinion of this guy called Danzig. But he, he's saying all this crazy stuff about music. And you know the, what the wor- you know what the worst part is is he says that people only like tool. For intellectual reasons. He says that people only listen to Tool because they like the idea of Tool. Has this guy ever even heard of a polyrhythm? You ever heard of a polyrhythm? No, you're too stupid to like Tool. Now, you know what your problem is, and the university is going to prove this. The university is going to prove that you're too stupid to to like Tool. You're too stupid to understand Danny Carey. The problem is you don't understand Maynard James Keenan's lyrics. I found out, see, I, I randomly found out Tool has this song that's like, it's like Eminem lyrics. It's a song that I remember people talking about back in the day. Like I remember my tool fan, uh, my tool friends talking about it. I didn't have that many, 
but someone talking about like hooker with a penis and it's like about people like the lyrics are about someone who accused tool of selling out and the lyrics are like i got news for you we sold out a long time before you were a fan and fuck you. Like the lyrics are like just addressing haters. It's like the same sort of thing you would see in a rap song. It's the same sort of thing you would see on social media. But Tool was doing it in there. Uh, Tool's lyrics are brilliant, dude. Tool's lyrics are brilliant. They go, I sold out long before you were a fan. So fuck you and fuck you. Those are seriously lyrics in the song. They don't go in that order. But the lyrics to this Tool song are like, You're going to tell me that I sold out, you hater? We sold out before you ever heard of us because we're selling you a product. It's a great lyrics, guys. Lyrics about your haters. I just, I need to buy some Alex Gray posters. I don't know, because you used to hear about, like, uh, kids, like, listening, like, taking LSD and listening to Tool. Like, Tool was associated with, like, consciousness expansion. I don't even have a beef with Tool. I'm just joking around, guys. I'm just joking around, guys. I don't even, I don't know enough about Tool to even say anything. I'm not going to name his name, because he might get mad at me. But a good friend of mine, when he was a teenager, we didn't grow up together, but when he was a teenager, he wrote a letter to Tool, and it said, my girlfriend likes you guys, or something to that effect. And then like sometime later, like a year or two later, he was reading a Tool interview in a magazine, and the question was, uh, like, what's the weirdest mail you've ever gotten? And they were like, well, we get some stupid mail. Uh, this guy wrote us a letter and it just said, my girlfriend listens to Tool. I'm probably paraphrasing it wrong. If and when he hears this, he'll probably correct me. But it was, it was so funny. Like he wrote a letter to them and he was a kid. And it just said, my girlfriend likes you guys. My girlfriend likes Tool. And then they mentioned that in an interview. They're like some guy wrote us a letter and said his girlfriend likes us. It's pretty amazing. No, but I don't know shit about them, honestly. That's another example, though. Like, I know that guy, Maynard James Keenan, he's been on uh, Joe Rogan, too. And that's another example where, like, Joe Rogan kind of gushes over him. I mean, I probably sound bitter or something. I don't know. I have no reason to be bitter about these people. It's just there's something about the way people talk to musicians that just doesn't do it for me. And I feel like it's, I mean, and it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I feel like there are interesting directions you could go in. Like, I feel like James Hetfield is capable of doing a fascinating interview, but it would just require the right person. And because, you know, musicians, I mean, because I think it's just people who, have, who are on a certain level, too. I mean, it's kind of like anybody who's, like, been through the media long enough especially people whose careers were formed during the time when like mainstream media was more dominant. Cause it's like something you see like in the same way that like the way people act on a late night TV show, like the way that a movie star acts when they're promoting a show on Jay Leno 
or Conan O'Brien, like that artificial, like I'm a human, I'm going to, I'm going to make self-deprecating jokes, but there's something extremely artificial about it. Cause they're just talking in sound bites. Like people who got too used to that way of talking suffer when you see them in, in different situations, which I think, I think you can see that on podcasts in particular, where people who came up in the old media don't do as well on it. And that includes musicians. That includes musicians who like did a lot of their promo through the old media. They don't translate that well in the new media. And so that's just, that's a, a part of things now too. And then, and the, also just the exposure of everybody. Like with podcasting in particular, like I'm always finding like new niches that are being explored. Like obviously pro wrestling is one of them. Or like the number of pro wrestling podcasts, the number of people involved in pro wrestling who have podcasts, who have done interviews on podcasts. And then like finding out that there are like just the other day I was digging into some Misfits stuff and Samhain stuff. And I found out that, yeah, there's like, of course, of course, there are Misfits podcasts. There are Misfits YouTube shows of guys who like interview high school friends, you know, of these guys. They interview like everybody. It's like Columbine, where it's like they interview everybody who ever knew them in high school. Everybody who went to Columbine High School. Like anybody who ever knew Jerry Only, we better talk to him. Anybody who ever knew Danzig, no. I don't know that they go that deep with it, but it's like there's just so much information out there. There's just it's it's crazy. That's my late night running out of steam statement there's just so much information out there <laughs> it's crazy though man it, it is insane how much information there is i just kind of like I, i've stopped like even trying to have a focus i just i'm kind of like today i'm like i'm learning about this today i'm paying attention to this I, I, I'm just on autopilot when it comes to like what I pay attention to. Now I hope someone someday is able to like fully encapsulate like, like just the entire culture of music, like get away from the sensationalism Get away from trying to tell an entertaining story and just look at it sociologically. Like the phenomenon of underground and popular music, all of the internal politics that go on inside of bands, all of the politics that go on among fans, like sometimes very real politics. Oh my God, Danzig and Morrissey are are not very uh, politically correct. Oh my God, what do we do about this? Oh my God, Danzig said that Planned Parenthood is harvesting baby parts. And he, did you hear that he defended Trumpsfeld's wall or his, his travel ban? What do we do? How am I ever going to listen to the misfits again without giving a disclaimer? Oh my God, like if my girlfriend finds out that Danzig said something bad about Planned Parenthood, I'm going to have to listen to the misfits in private. You should already be listening to the Misfits in private. I had a girlfriend once. She wasn't into anything I was into. But when she was in high school, she had dated like a punk kid. 
and uh, you know when I'm around a girl, like I, I try to play things that I feel like are like not not catering to her, but are just like a little more palatable. Like, and I, I don't even mean that in an insulting way, but it's like I'll put on like Pentagram, Danzig, maybe Misfits, all kinds of stuff, but still like Black Sabbath. Like, things that are a little more palatable, I guess, in my mind. Like, I'm not going to, like, dig into, like, obscure realms. I'm not going to play anything, like, that's too... I don't know, they're just that she's not really accustomed to. I don't know. I don't, I don't overthink it. But it's just... There was one time where this girl, she was, like, at my house, and I was playing Static Age. I just... I put it on. It just... It seemed like an easy thing to have on while we drank wine or did whatever. And... uh it was, and then, but like, I had that on, and she was like, "Oh, hearing this makes me feel like I'm in high school." I haven't heard this in a long time, but she said it in kind of a dismissive way, and I was like, "That sucks." Like this, this probably reminds her of like hanging out with her punk skater boyfriend when she was 15, and he made her listen to the Misfits while he played like Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, and she had to watch. Like this, that's probably what she's thinking right now. Whereas like, but that, that's not going to take anything away from me, man. But it was kind of funny. It was like, oh yeah, playing the Misfits. I don't know. It's just, it, that is the interesting thing about the Misfits. Cause like there was a point in time, like even when I got into them or it wasn't like you were running into Misfits fans everywhere. Obviously they were a bigger band from that, from, you know, if any, anybody's into punk, anybody's into metal, knows Danzig, they know the Misfits, but it wasn't like you were running into the Crimson Skull everywhere. But over time, it just did be, they have become kind of a standard, but, you know. I have to sometimes remind myself that it's like, if I think something is just truly that good, it's good that people like it. It's like a spirituality where like I'll meet I'll I'll come across people I wouldn't say I meet them but I'll come across people online who are interested in spirituality and you'll see they they become gatekeepers even though they're new to it like you'll see where like somebody gets into Buddhism somebody gets into Christianity somebody gets into occultism and they're immediately trying to tell other people like how to do it or what to do or that this person isn't true and it's it, you know it's easy to do that we do we all do it in different ways. Um, but it's like on some level, you just have to look at it. Like, especially if you think that it's a good idea. Like if I find out that somebody's like studying Buddhism, I think great. The more, the merrier, the more people thinking about these ideas who are even like taking this step, not necessarily Buddhism, but anything, anything that is in my opinion, going to lead them one step closer in a better direction. I don't think, oh God, we got to protect this. Oh my God. They don't know what they're doing. They don't even know what they're doing. I don't think that way about it. I think it's going to be the more people that pay attention to these things, the better. And it's harder for me to do that with certain jewels. There are certain jewels where I think, eh, you know, I'd rather this be kept occult. Because, I mean, occultism plays, I mean, you know, you think about the word occult, which means hidden. And I think some things should remain sacred. Some things should remain occulted. 
I think there are some things that you think are objectively good. Like there's music I like that I, I truly think is objectively good. But I would, I would rather it be kind of kept away from people. I would rather it kind of feel like a sacred, unique jewel, even though it's not. Even though it's it's not mine. There's still something in me, though, and it's not everything. It's just certain things, like where I think, huh. And I mean, it was interesting, like watching the Misfits reunion in 2016 with Danzig, the crowd was singing along to a lot of it. And in the videos I was watching, in some cases, the crowd singing along was drowning out Danzig. But he was encouraging them to sing. And, you know, I didn't I didn't even feel like, well, they shut up. Will the crowd shut up? I actually felt good. Like hearing the crowd sing along, I was like, this is a religious event. All these people are just like I was when I was 15. And they probably fantasized about the day that Glenn Danzig sings these songs again as part of the Misfits. And here he is doing it. He's doing it amazingly well. Everybody's feeling it. He's telling you to sing along if you know the lyrics. That's a religious event. Like, people should be participating in that. And, like, watching the video, it made me like it more. Like, it made me like it more that random fucking people were, like, you could hear their voices, you know? I don't know. I feel that way about certain things. I feel that way about football. Like, when I like a football team, when I when I cheer for the Seahawks, I like going out into the world and seeing other people in Seahawks gear. I like seeing people in Seahawks shirts, Seahawks hats. There's something where I'm like, I'm glad that I'm glad to be a part of this in that situation. So I don't know. I'm still trying to kind of, I don't know that I need to figure it out, but I'm, I, I sometimes think about that with myself where it's like, no matter how, no matter where I go, no matter what I think, there's still a part of me that likes jewels. And I like to clutch jewels close to my chest and hide them from people who I feel like don't deserve to to share in this jewel. I feel that I'm healthier and better about that now. But I still have a need to do it. I still have some things that for whatever reason I feel that way about. But then there are other things I don't. There are other things where I'm like, this should be known. I like that I can share this with people. And I, I think you kind of need those. And Danzig has been that. You know, Danzig and all of his bands, they've been that for me. Like when I meet somebody who's a Danzig fan, I feel that I immediately have common ground with them. And I, I meet very few people who are casual fans. I meet very few people who, most of the people I know are just like me, where they got into it at a foundational age. And even if they're not like Mr. Misfits today, even if they're not going around in their house at night, putting their hair in a devil lock and looking in the mirror, it still has a certain magic to them and they haven't outgrown it. Like when they hear the Misfits or, or Samhain or Danzig now, they don't say, oh, it's funny. I can't believe I used to like that. Ugh. Usually they still feel the magic. And the same cannot be said for everything. It's not just nostalgia. It's not just the fact that we all got into that stuff as teenagers. Because there's plenty of other stuff that I got into back then. Even stuff that I still like today. But it doesn't have that same magic. So it all comes back down to magic for me with this stuff. That intangible force. 
And I feel like that intangible force is also kind of like within my own taste, it sort of differentiates things where it's like some things I feel that I want to share with people and I get something out of that exchange. Like when I meet a Danzig fan, I think this is a great bridge to that person. When I, Black Sabbath, like if somebody's a Black Sabbath fan, I feel that I can immediately talk to them about that. And, the, and fans aren't usually that casual about it. I think with the things that I'm using as examples here, I mean, I bet some Tool fans, I bet some Tool fans feel that way when they meet other Tool fans. I bet they do, because my world isn't the only world. And I'm glad Tool fans have other Tool fans, because I sure as heck wouldn't want to talk to them about Tool. Oh, cool, you like, oh, Maynard James Keenan, he's such a poet. He sings about haters. He sings about some guy who told him he sold out. Oh, dude, that's fucking cool. That's cool. No, I'm so, here I am. Here I am. No, but it, I'm glad Tool fans have their other Tool fans, you know? There are those things that you don't mind sharing, and, and in fact, like sharing them with other people actually makes them that much stronger. But I feel like that's it's also that intangible magical force that makes bands that way, that makes things that way. That makes you say, okay, this is something that is actually more powerful the more it affects people. The more it appeals to people. Because I think that is one of the things that made the Misfits so appealing to people. Where I had I had some friends who were into the Misfits. The Misfits were sort of a good like branching off point. Where like I was really into them, and so were a bunch of my friends. A bunch of my friends were skateboarders. We all kind of went through our through brief punk phases. Like, my closest friends and I, we all kind of, like, went through maybe a year of being into punk, give or take. And then we all kind of went in different directions. And, like, what's interesting, though, is, like, the Misfits were kind of, like, a branching off point. Where, like, we were all really into the Misfits. And then, like, my other friends, they kind of got more into indie rock. They still love the Misfits, but it's, like, they kind of got into indie rock. They kind of explored this softer side of things. Whereas I was into the darker. I was into the heavier but we both shared the misfits as sort of this common branching off point. Not that everything came from that. Not that our taste later on like came directly from the misfits, but that was sort of this like it was sort of where we both branched off from and where we could also go back. Like one of my best friends and I went and saw Danzig together my sophomore year of high school. And that friend, he had gotten into all kinds of other stuff. Like he was listening to all kinds of indie rock, singer-songwriter stuff. But we shared that common bond of Danzig. And so who who else is going to go with me? My best friend, you know, where we used to we used to sit around listening to the Misfits and Danzig. And so it, that is the thing about it, too, is it, it appeals to a lot of different people. And I'm glad I have that. You know, I'm, I'm glad that I still have something that is mythological, is mythical, the Misfits lore still means something to me. Like reading about their who was in the band back in the day. 
reading about like them in high school. Even though that those are mundane details, those mundane details actually make the lore that much better to me. And there aren't that many things that I still feel that way about. You know, there aren't that many things where like I really buy into the lore. I really buy into the mythology. And so when you have those things, it's you should appreciate having them. You shouldn't look at it and be like, oh, uh, oh, I spent the last five days listening to the Misfits and I haven't done that since I was 17 years old. I guess I'm regressing. Oh, I guess my taste is regressing because I listened to every single Misfits album five times recently. No, I think it's just, that's great. You should be happy that something still invokes that in you. Because so many things do run their course. You know, you do go in and out of liking things. You, your taste does come and go. Who you think you are comes and goes if you let it. And so when some things come back and they still have that power, you have to appreciate it. Because, you know, what's the alternative? Like, oh, so-and-so is doing a reunion. Oh, they the these former members of the band started their own band that's supposed to sound like they used to sound. Oh, and there's a lawsuit. Oh, they released a new digital album. You know, it's like that stuff doesn't go very far. Whereas everything else that I'm talking about here, these bands, these groups, these people, I mean, it it goes beyond music. Some people feel this way about books. I feel this way about books. I feel this way about certain people, thinkers, you know, some people, they just manage to go far. They go far with you. This land is mine. God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children Free. So take.